Hello, and welcome to Girls Got Game. Girls Watch His Dark Materials, Series 2, Episode 2, The Cave. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. We're coming off of a really big argument. <laughs> it's 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 a it's actually a discussion, not a discussion. No, not a discussion. And we're trying to figure out if we should be changing our intro to us singing the intro. An acapella version, if you will. An acapella Is it good? Version. Is it an arrangement? It's an arrangement. Debatable. Lauren, weigh in. We would love to a hear. Vocal. A yeah. vocal. We would love to hear. Arrangement. So you never know. You might be listening to this with the vocal arrangement and stylings of Girls Gone Canon. Or uh, by the time of its release, this episode's release, you may still have the old intro music. But you never know. There's, I mean, this is one of those things, right? That splits into two different worlds. And there will be one dimension, one world, where we made the choice to do the vocal arrangement and another where we kept it and you know let's see what 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 world this one is yeah i mean asriel's probably messed all of these worlds up already so what what harm could we really do what harm can we really (laughs) do what harm could (laughs) our hijinks truly do catch me at the toy d'alliangeli you know what i'm saying uh it's good to be back last week if you listened into our first episode coverage we were so happy to have our friend Lo on they were an excellent addition an excellent voice to the paneling but this week it's back to us this week it's just us just us we've got our, our feet and up maybe our vocal arrangements <laughs> maybe just our, our vocal arrangements <laughs> just our voices uh, this isn't the only thing you're gonna hear from us this week though if you're listening to this uh in the united states we might be very thankful for a couple other episodes coming your way. Ah, ah it's Thanksgiving this uh, week. That was the joke. Uh, wow. Get it? But we do have another episode this week you'll be hearing. La Belle Sauvage, episode three, chapters six through eight. La Belle Sauvage is, of course, the companion trilogy to the main trilogy of His Dark Materials, written by Philip Pullman. And this episode is uh, coming inspired by His Dark Materials via the show. It is. And so, you know, in in La Belle Sauvage, we are following a time that Lyra is still a baby, following a boy named Malcolm Polstead, and that should be coming to you probably Friday of this week. Yes. And then next week we'll return with another Davos episode. Yes, Davos in A Song of Ice and Fire, the other series that we're following. And if you're a patron of ours over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, you get special patron episodes if you're in the stranger tier and above, the $5 tier and above. This month's special Patreon episode will be about A Song of Ice and Fire on the Lycene Spring from Fire and Blood. And next month, we will be having a His Dark Materials-themed episode, so stay tuned for that reveal. Yes, we have something, I think, pretty exciting planned for our December episode. But yes, this one's the Lycene Spring uh, in winter, the middle of autumn. <laughs> well, we did get a really great email from our friend John, the Prince of Sunsphere. He sent us an email saying, A couple of things that I thought about during this episode. The books were written pre-smartphone, and it's a really nice symmetry to the alethiometer. I look forward to seeing how they integrate it into the show. 
Yes, totally agree on that. Mm -hmm. I am excited about that. I actually spent a lot of time staring at the phone interactions and seeing what Will was doing. And some of them had meaning. I was very, very surprised. I like Mrs. Coulter's interpretation of Dark Sansa Stark cosplay from Game of Thrones, John said. I love that it's uh, Mrs. Coulter's feather outfit, right, that we see her in at the Magisterium. Mm-hmm. And then it is really good outfit. Yeah, the beading, I love the beading. It's very pretty, iconic, very good, very iconic. John comments that Thorell's demon is a Jack Russell, and as we know, loyal servants have dog demons. Jack Russells are known for hunting foxes and otters, and he comments that if you're a Harry Potter fan, Ron Weasley's Patronus is a Jack Russell, and Hermione's Patronus is an otter. The Magisterium airships use incendiary bombs. Contrary to Michael Bay, not all bombs have fiery explosions. They chose to burn the witches with fire. Yeah, that's an interesting tie-in to, of course, I'm sure people have associations with, uh, you know, people do it, burning witches or women alleged to be witches mm-hmm. in the past. So, interesting way that they brought that into this episode. Yeah, I know that I was kind of capturing or screenshotting during the summer when we had some of the trailers what the bombs were, uh, trying to connect, trying to figure out. So it's crazy to see that brought into this episode so early on in the series. There's a lot of really new stuff happening. And I, I, I'm i not going to say I love a bombing. That's awful. Holy shit. I love this adaptation, though. This is... It's yeah. good. We had thought, of course, that it was going to be... Right, the the warring that would happen towards the end of this book with Lee Scoresby and John Perry, but I'm glad that there are things that you know that are in the trailers and things that are still surprising. I'm excited for that. I'm surprised every week, and I I know there yeah. are surprises tonight. I'm at the point where I'm tuning out of the extra content. I feel like there's a lot of extra content. I was just talking to the Dark Materials podcast it. about this. Uh, Ian and Amy over there, we were discussing about how there's so much extra stuff that there's too much and I'm not seeing things. We have a friend in our Discord over on Patreon that is bringing in a bunch of those little extras every week posting, here's a behind the scenes this and bless them, bless Cassidy, our friend for that because I can't even keep up. They're releasing so much extra stuff. Uh, but I, yeah. it's stuff I'm kind of at the point I don't want to keep up with it. I, I like that I somehow they're outsmarting me and surprising me, and I am into it every week. It feels good. Yeah, I mean, I like speculating, right, on what might happen, but I don't want to know until it happens. And I, I think we've discussed that, you know, that I'm kind of personally a little spoiler-averse. Yes. So yes. That, that plays into it. And yeah. Speaking of spoilers, sorry if any of you have tuned in and were surprised by some of the things that are going to happen uh, in that perhaps you haven't read these books, right? And with that, we are going to dive into the episode soon. And the material that we will discuss from his dark materials will cover anything from the three main books. We may touch on some stuff from the side stories, the novellas, and or very, very briefly right on things from the Book of Dust, but I think that's pretty unlikely in this episode. Uh, so just just be forewarned that we are going to discuss things from Northern Light slash The Golden Compass, The Subtle Knife, and The Amber Spyglass. Yes, and I will add, we will be discussing Serpentine because the show spoiled it. True. Um, so I don't have to. Yeah, it's it's whatever. It's a you've watched this episode. And it's it's a twenty-eight page novella, so I'm not really it's not that big of a spoiler. Alright. We did this last week. 
I like this. This is fun for me. What is your favorite part? I want to know, Eliana, your favorite part. And I'm talking. It does not have to be some deep, like, momentous, oh, Lee scores be this, or it can be the stupidest, littlest thing in the world. What is your favorite part? Go. Well, Lee Scoresby wasn't here. Um, no. <laughs> Chloe was personally affronted by the lack of Hester in this episode. <laughs> I'm torn between two parts. Um, and yes, yeah, same, same vibes as last week. One might be where Mary Malone goes, oh, I'm sorry, this like... This cookie thing is stale, sets it down, and Lyra, you can see, is kind of like, she still kind of wants to eat it, but is trying to pretend to be normal and sets it down. And I'm like, no, poor Lyra. I'm like, I would have kept eating yep. it. I would have been like, is this, this is totally fine. This is fine. Uh, the other one might be, you know, as Lo loved all the red panda scenes last episode, and like Pan is a red panda at the beginning of this episode, helping Lyra pick out outfits, and the excitement behind, like, yes, <laughs> that's it, that's the one. And she comes out and she has this cape <laughs> and is so proud of herself, and Pan's proud of her. That's a good moment, too. <laughs> it was so good. I, uh, I, I enjoyed that. I, I, okay, I think I have two. I do think I have two. I was gonna only go one, but I'm going big or going home, right? Mm, so mm, yeah yeah this one has become a common line last week it was the hmm the the very casual hmm "Hmm." this week i think my favorite favorite common line in the household because we just say it and pretend our cats are saying it (laughs) when pan says unbelievable when he gets shoved in the bag (laughs) oh i lose my mind unbelievable Uh, it is the funniest crap in the world. Uh, I think that is probably my favorite. So We've been saying it at whenever the cats are mad at us for like, you know, I don't know, not letting them go in a room or something and like shutting them out. One of us will just yell, unbelievable. He's <laughs> so offended. That, oh, one was, that one was good. That's a good one. From the start, that was good. And then yeah. my other favorite is when Lyra holds the alethiometer like in FBI badge, right? When she's just oh, holding yeah. it up like freeze FBI that one is my lesser favorite, but it is a favorite just because we saw that from the summer. We saw stills come out from production mm-hmm. of that moment, and I'm really excited to see how it was incorporated and that it was at Mary Malone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, the confidence that Lyra has to open it in such a way and not think she's going to drop it, because I would have dropped it. Like, on my foot. Yeah, I've been like, I'm going to look really cool right now in doing this, and then totally, <laughs> totally fuck it up, but... She nails it. Yeah, this was a good episode. I'm I'm excited about getting into this with you because it was just a a full episode. Every single scene contained yeah. some sort of nugget of information to propel the story forward, and I wasn't bored in most of these. So let's start off in Oxford with Lyra and Will visiting Will's Oxford. Will is teaching mm-hmm. her to blend in, and he does not approve of her poncho, nor her giant hat, which Eliana did not spoil yet. The giant hat, Eliana. Yes. Tell us about the it. The giant hat was a great touch, especially because, again, Pam's just egging her on, is super excited about everything, and it's like, yes, that's it with the key. <laughs> and it really hammers home, yes, Pam is her. And, I don't know, I'm just like, yeah, that would be me. And we discussed this in the trailer, right... But as a reminder, um, when we were first watching this in that in that trailer, it looked like this might be a little more significant. Not that it's not significant. Again, one of my favorite parts of the episode. <laughs> but the cape that Lyra picks 
it is multicolored and it's got those stripes and we, we're gonna see those lines the use of visual lines and stripes throughout this entire episode but it reminds me of how in the opening credits those worlds are kind of layered together and they look like those stripes lines and striations especially as we zoom out and we'll see kind of something like that repeated with the cave later on but also our friend candid 59 on twitter pointed out in response to that episode uh, that we did on Girls Gone Canon, that these multicolored stripes on Lyra's cape, actually, Will's demon, later on, that we meet in book three, Kerjava, that name Kerjava means multicolored in Finnish. Everything means Will and Lyra. Everything. I know, it does. Gosh. No, that's... I was really impressed with the use of these lines and these stripes throughout that tree motif, like we discussed last episode, mm-hmm. and with here with the poncho even, and then later, and it, I I figured that's what it was, but it blew my mind seeing the lines on the cave and going, oh my god, yeah. those are the freaking lines from the intro. It was a very mind blowing, like, wow. This episode was very like. I love being a His Dark Materials fan. That's how I felt about this episode. (laughs) I mean, a lot of people have said that they think this might be the strongest episode so far. Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows? By the time that this, our episode and review of episode two comes out, episode three of series two will have already been out. And that could blow us out of the water, too. That could actually be the best episode. I don't know. I hope so. I hope so. I, I hope each one is better than the last. Yep. That is my dream. Well... Will says that he has to see his mom's lawyers and he's on his phone, his phone device, right? And he has 10% battery. It says he has 10% battery there in Chitigatse. Oh no. The follow-up now is I've rewatched it a billion times and later on when he's checking her knee, he has a bag that he has like his phone, he takes something out of it and plugs his phone all up and he has like two chargers coming out of his phone. Which you'd think would be normal, like one would be your earbuds and the other would be your charger. And I'm guessing he had an energy bank, but it was really weird because it looked like he had two chargers plugged into his phone of different size chargers. I don't know. He could be like trying different ones, seeing seeing what worked. I don't know. Yeah. I uh, I would like the prop department to weigh in on this. Yes. Mm-hmm. How is Will charging his phones? Well, it looked like he had just bought one of them, right? Yeah. When they were on that thing, because he was taking out of a, a plastic bag and case. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of them pooped out, and he can't, like, stay anywhere long enough to get it charged. That's what I was guessing, too, his battery. I, I mean, yeah. introducing phones is very complicated, as John mentioned. Now it kind of uh, changes yeah. all of it for Will. He's got to keep up. And as we'll keep going, we'll see other things, like uh, his missed call screen, etc., so I actually like how that's playing into this. And yeah, and the missed calls, I guess, you know, obviously Signal doesn't probably work mm-hmm. in Chittagaza. That's what I was thinking, was Signal doesn't work, His it's dead because it's looking for a freaking satellite. Well, so what he should do, should put this is way too much mode. thought, yeah, he should put it in airplane mode and turn off the Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. It's, well, I guess putting it in airplane mode would do that automatically, mm-hmm. and that helps save battery. Yeah, Chittagaza mode. Yep. Or he could actually technically probably turn it off most of the time in Chitagatse, except, you know, Will's trying to take pictures for his gram, as we saw last episode. Yeah, do it for the vine, you know? <laughs> do it for the vine. Uh, R.I.P. Vine, vine walked so that TikTok could run. Um, Will says, though, 
What's not exciting for some characters is that Pan has to hide inside this backpack. Unbelievable! <laughs> Pan's just like Lyra's gonna get me out of this, right? And Lyra's like, nope. "Sorry, sorry, can't I do can't. shit, Pan. This is it. This is it for you, buddy." She like rushes oh. through the window and she gets herself lightly hit by a car. Unbelievable! Pan's just in the bag, like he's the closest thing getting hit by the car besides Lyra, and like Will yells at her. He's like, "You have to be careful and blend in. Don't you know the word wait?" And Pan's like, "Thanks." Thanks for checking in on me. I'm fine. Yeah, he literally says that. It's a fantastic small moment. He's like, what about me, everyone? In the bag. She fell on me. Hello. Unbelievable. (sighs) As we're walking away, we see that Lord Boreal is still in this car and it shows him through the window. Three different versions through the window. They are killing me with Mm. these windows. This episode specifically is just like window, glass, window, door, window, window. (sighs) We get it. You read the source material, guys. Oh my god. To the will. (laughs) (laughs) I'm proud of of that one. Um, (laughs) There's great cinematics though. So as they walk by and they're saying they need to blend in the camera angles in onto the car mirror first to show someone in it, which you already know. You're like, oh, it's got to be Boreal. And the window comes down on the car, gets rolled down. And of course, it reveals Boreal through another window, through another world. Yes. And of course, he's on the right side of the car because that is how cars work in the UK. <laughs> um, I'm, again, very bad at driving on that side of the car. And there's a lot of symmetrical framing in this episode as well, besides the windows, and we'll see some of it in the magisterium scenes, of course, like the funeral, everyone looking like, I don't know, the fucking battle-line schoolgirls. But Mm -hmm. here, as Lyra and Will are leaving that street island, it looks like those two roads converging, right, around that island as Lyra and Will's roads have converged. And, you know, coming back to Lord Boreal, though, I'm just like, how long has he been waiting here? His car is just so... Dirty. I mean, it works because all the other cars are like a little dusty too. Not that kind of dusty. Like literally, just nobody's cleaning their cars here. Look, I'm gonna be honest with you. He's probably just left his car there for three to five months. If you remember his introduction mm. to the last one, I think that's supposed to show passage of time too. That's the other thing. This is a way to show passage of time from being in different worlds. Um, oh, yeah. Because he's walked back. Absolutely. After this, we see him back at the Magisterium. So I'm guessing it's supposed to show time because when we first meet him, you get the boot on the car. That's what we see from. We see an angle of a boot on a car showing like that it has like a, it's been locked up because it's been there for too long. Oh, right. That. Mm-hmm. Like a towing boot, you know, on the tire. Yeah. yeah. So also as somebody who has left their car outside for about three to five months now in one spot <laughs> and it doesn't move right now either. I'm guessing his car's probably just staying there. You know, he got the one good parking spot, free parking spot. Yeah. He has windows to go through, you know. That's honestly the smart thing to do yeah. on his part. Just leave it, take that spot. And I mean, maybe he just stops by every now and then, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think hanging out there in his car on his smartphone, which smartphones are pretty cool, uh, is probably way more fun than sitting in on magisterium meetings. Holy shit, yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised, you know, if they all had smartphones, I bet some of them would be on it during those meetings. I, Lord Boreal definitely would be. Absolutely. He'd be sentenced, he'd be on, oh, Lord Boreal would be on Tinder. Oh my god. Oh, maybe. 
Wow. Truly. Oh, my God. He'd be out there trying to swipe on the Oxford hotties. You know what I mean? Yeah. They'd all be swiping on him. Like, McPhail, if your platform is for better Wi-Fi, I'm into it. (laughs) I mean, it's a good thing to campaign on. So we're back at Oxford, and it's bustling. It's busy. It's full of people, food, things to see, new things to see. Lyra's like, what the fuck is all of this? And she's really disoriented. She sees a building that looks like what her Jordan is near, and she runs toward it, causing kind of a ruckus on the way, and she finds it is not the same building at all. It is a construction site, which, according to some friends of the Her Dark Materials podcast, this is now a COVID testing area in real life. Yes. And I like the scene where Lyra running into these places. She just crashes into some <laughs> workers and then she like squats out and puts her hand on. She's like, so sorry, so sorry, so sorry. Then just turns around and keeps running and it's just perfect. Classic Lyra is total classic Absolutely. Lyra. That brings us to the Magisterium with the Cardinal's funeral. Again, Miss Clavel vibes, but dark, goth. Father McPhail gives a speech about the wild witch who killed the cardinal and has a line of the authority has blessed me with a clarity of purpose which cuts through my grief like a knife but it's so like dramatic right it's the most dramatic speech honestly something is not any speech given there with those acoustics is going to be dramatic this is a great spot uh but he does kill it will keen does a great job here but the way it's pronounced it's like through my grief like a knife and it like resounds it's like echo echo and it's crazy it's very sharp like a knife like the the, the the actual tonality of the speech is very focused and obviously also the emphasis is on knife because we know the subtle knife is coming we know that soon lots of build-up yes. lots of foreshadowing and he dedicates himself to the great task of cleansing the witches interesting they're dusty and then yeah, they That's are. That's what he's saying. Not not laden with anything else at all. <laughs> and then he leans... In the, throughout this, you know, we've noticed, of course, that the Magisterium is using the term the authority, um, really leaning into that, which I think makes sense. You know, you can't just go out there and tell everyone this is a show about killing God because they are, in fact, trying to get the show produced, um, unlike all the hubbub that surrounded the Golden Compass movie. And... <laughs> You know, but but leaning into that term, right, it also, of course, plays into the very authoritarian nature of this regime. But It's really great to see it like this, to see it revealed and not stripped down to bare bones like in the Golden Compass and actually like, this is the intention behind all of it. If anything, it's it's the opposite of stripped down, right? Yeah. They've really fleshed it out, done a lot, and it, it's a great way that they're just making that really have more weight and importance and... They're doing a really yeah, good doing job. Doing world building. Doing I, I, yeah, job. I know that some people, I'm sure some people aren't like super jazzed, but again, Chloe and I have been traumatized. We've had a hard life. Shows on HBO that are adaptations of fantasy novels don't always happen in a positive yeah. manner. And sometimes mm-hmm. they are trash. And sometimes you end up with a movie that gets execs walking in at the last second saying cut this cut this cut this we're not ready for a god-hating movie yet yeah and sometimes you get people that are blessedly talented to adapt the script and not only adapt it in a meaningful and honest adaptation but also like add in some really great creations utilizing the source material and having it mean something toward the end of the story yeah incorporating things that are like themes you know again yeah 
eighth grade book reports. And fan service that's actually meaningful. Yeah. So, you know, if we seem too complimentary, just remember, we've all been burned before. And not quite like Father McPhail, but maybe a little. Uh-huh. Uh, Will and Lyra, though. Been burnt there, too, with Will and Lyra. Just saying. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. Jesus. And we're gonna re- we're gonna relive that hurt this episode. They're really just getting us ready yeah. to feel that hurt. I uh, <laughs> I was spoiled and saw the bench beforehand. Like I, I waited a couple hours before I got to actually see the episode. And the bench, of course, had made its rounds and had been kind of like teased, yeah. which is the ultimate foreshadow tease fan service. And they know they knew what they were doing first of all. And in this scene, we get the first mention of the botanical gardens. Will and Lyra, yes. Will is cleaning her up while they talk about the botanical gardens. And that was the first moment where I was like, shut up. I hate you guys so much. Shut up. Uh, Hurtful. Lyra's like, what do you keep looking at? Which is his cell phone. And she explains, oh, my cell phone gets really good service anywhere. And it told me that you're a murderer, by the way. <laughs> and then Will, yeah. And I'm just saying, does the alethiometer have fleet? No, not like Recently that. rolled out on Twitter. Nope. I'm not using it. Oh. But... People are excited about it. I'm more of a, I'm I'm loyal to my Instagram stories. So do it for the gram, do it for the gram, just as Will does. And you know, Will is upset though about the things that Lyra saw on her alethiometer newsfeed about him being a murderer, and <laughs> I mean, obviously so, understandably so. He does, of course, though, have that new phone battery charger that we were discussing that he bought. And as Chloe pointed out earlier, there's it's a little confusing with the two charging ports, but, you know, we're going to go with it. Yes, Will's phone is going off, and he tells Lyra he has to go meet his mom, or see his mom, not meet her. And he says, let's meet back at the Botanical Gardens at 5pm. Turns out, the alethiometer cannot set alarms, as we learn. But some mm-hmm. of the text on Will's phone, since I'm a loser and I paused it, and I was like, let me pause it and see what they say. I believe these texts say, can you at least let me know you're okay? When are you coming back? Will, please let me know when you're coming back. I love you, mom. Where are you? And he has, I can't tell if it's four or six missed calls, but it does say there's 18 more notifications. And the missed calls, you can see, say they're from Mr. Hanway, who is the gym teacher. Mm -hmm. So if you recall, he's in this episode as well, very briefly. Must be him. So I thought that was neat that the phone, actually, if you zoom in, is not just like mumbo jumbo. It is related. Good job. Very detailed. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, it's all just suddenly coming in at once, right? Because as we said, no signal into the mm-hmm. say. But yes, signal everywhere for the alethiometer. And I couldn't really read the screen, so I'm glad that you grabbed these. Mine was too blurry. I make you do all the math ones, but I got you. <laughs> yeah. These little details. So... After that, Will Will leaves, and he's obviously a little a little. Well, I guess brusque. Pan Pan warns Lyra. Yeah, Pan is like, shouldn't yeah. have called him a murderer. I just <laughs> want to call out that Will is like walking backwards when he's like, okay, meet me at five p.m. and he has no eyes on the road, so he's just walking backwards into a street. He could be hit by a car, and yet he just had the audacity to yell at Lyra about be. rushing to get hit by a car. The audacity! The audacity! Unbelievable. Yeah, I you know, teenagers, they all think that they'll be fine. And I guess part of it is like, you know, at least he knows what a car sounds like and to look out for it, whereas Lyra is just like, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. I'm gonna live my life. 
Lyra then finds some other things, though, that are closer to her Oxford, maybe her Jordan College. She passes a bunch of different things that absolutely embody her world, her Jordan. Some of the posters are the magical operas of Mozart, such as the Clemency of Titus, the Magic Flute, and Don Giovanni amongst them. The next one is Elizabethan Lute Songs by Candlelight, and it actually specifies um, I Saw My Lady Weep. And I Saw My Lady Weep is a lute song from the second book of songs by Renaissance lutenist and composer John Dowland. John Dowland heavily used chromaticism, which is not the album by Lady Gaga. It is a uh, musical device, not chromatica. Uh, like a chromatic scale. It's a heavy form of dissonance, basically. Sometimes it's called the othered sound to diatonicism's male sound, which is like, basically it intersperses primary diatonic pitches and chords with the pitches of the chromatic scale. Chromaticism elaborates or substitutes. It only uses music from outside of its key, so it's kind of a harsh sound. So I saw my lady weep, back to the actual song, the song itself is part of the Elizabethan melancholy, romanticized. Basically, the woman's beauty is somehow excessive in her crying and more than her being a beautiful, dainty lady. And the end of the song is kind of ironic because it reasons love conquering over reason. It's said to be directly connected with the next song in the album, Flow My Tears. Dowland's most famous and kind of his signature song that follows it. It begins with a falling tear motif that starts on an A and actually descends down to E by the end. Not in the way of it's a two-part song necessarily, but the way that the chromatic scale and dissonance builds in I Saw My Lady Weep, it actually doesn't give you resolution. So you're almost teetering on the edge when you get through I Saw My Lady Weep. When you listen to both of them together, Flow My Tears actually has resolution and it resolves instead of leaving you hanging with that dissonance. So the modern English lyrics for I Saw My Lady Weep, mostly because I don't know that I could pronounce faithfully all of the old English lyrics. I saw my lady weep, in sorrow proud to be advanced so, in those fair eyes where all perfections keep, her face was full of woe. But such a woe, believe me, as wins more hearts than mirth can do with her enticing charms. Sorrow was there made fair, and passion wise, tears a delightful thing. Silence beyond all speech, a wisdom rare, she made her sighs to sing. And all things with so sweet a sadness move, as made my heart at once both grieve and love. O oh, fairer than aught else, the world can show, leave off in time to grieve. Enough, enough, your joyful look excels, tear kills the heart believe. O oh, strive not to be excellent in woe, which only breeds your beauty's overthrow. So with that poem... When you put that song against Flow My Tears, which this, these are probably my favorite verses. From the highest spire of contentment, my fortune is thrown, and fear and grief and pain for my deserts, for my deserts, are my hopes since hope is gone. Hark, you shadows that in darkness dwell, learn to contemn light. Happy, happy, they that in hell feel not the world's despite. It feels very much like Will and Lyra foreshadowing is kind of what I'm saying to you all. That's all. That's how it felt that she yeah. like, found that song of all things. Like it, it, especially in the last verse there of "Flow My Tears," the heart you shadows that in darkness dwell learn to contemn light. Happy, happy they that in hell feel not the world's despite. Yeah, I think that's a great poem, and I mean, it could very well be. You know, we know that Pullman loves his poetry, 
And yeah, not only does it feel like that love between Will and Lyra, but also the happy that they and Hal feel not the worlds despite some of what we're going to see in the Amber Spyglass with the Land of the Dead. Mm -hmm. Another thing that we have uh, here that Lyra runs past is a bunch of posters with bears on it. You know, good murderers. <laughs> and with the title Story of the North of Early Life in the Arctic. Yes, there's Story of the North, Saving the Arctic, and sa another Saving the Arctic. There's a couple variations. So the first one with the Story of the North is a bit odd, right? There's one that kind of shows an odd dress on the bottom. Uh, and it there's also a couple other ones. One that kind of has a sled on it that kind of looks like what she was taken on and kidnapped in the Northern Lights, right? On the way to Bullvanger. They definitely reminded me of Bullvanger. Mm -hmm. The other two Saving the Arctic posters had a yeah. lovely Arctic bear holding melted ice and another one with melted bears or bears with melted waters in front of them and ice caps. Which is in fact happening, of course, in our real world. It really yep. is, though. Yep. And it's quite sad. You know, when, when Lyra snags one of these Story of the North flyers you were talking about, is this supposed how this is like reminiscent of Lyra's time in Bolvanger. Uh, she goes inside uh, the Pitt Rivers Museum, and it's reminiscent of her own world and the Arctic mm -hmm. Institute. Uh, she pretends to examine things while secretly using the alethiometer at a display, but one of the displays behind her has, you know, some of the, the northern clothing. And in the book, Lyra finds that it's like the same clothes and even a photograph, right, of the tartars who kidnapped her and including also her own clothing it doesn't seem to be that here i rewatched that episode of when lyra gets kidnapped and their clothing's a little different maybe the hats are kind of similar but i so i think it's more of the posters that you were talking about chloe that's supposed to be the way that that's mm -hmm. interpreted for this show yeah i definitely thought the the posters outside looked a lot like similar at least but inside, the clothing was a little different, which is yeah. to be expected, right? A different world. Yeah, and maybe even like that, that might be the real exhibit there, right? And you can't just make the whole museum change it out. I mean, <laughs> maybe you can. I don't know how production works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then Lyra asks the alethiometer where she can find a scholar to help her with dust, and it shows her keys, which... She asks Pan which saint held keys, and he says St. Peter. Yeah, so they come up with St. Peter's College. Uh, and specifically, something that they might not remember or notice, as we know they were notorious for pulling shenanigans during class. Not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> These are the keys to heaven. Not just any keys. Uh, the keys of heaven mm -hmm. are the keys of St. Peter. They're seen as a symbol of papal authority, which combines really well with the episode today as far as we go on magisterium. And they're seen on the papal coats of arms. In the Gospel of Matthew sixteen nineteen, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This, of course, reminds me of some crazy things about to happen in his Dark Materials, right? A little bit of the specters that we've already met, but also of the war on the Kingdom of Heaven that we are yet to see. I also thought it was notable that the crest for St. Peter's College not only has the golden keys crossed over the Kingdom of Heaven on a field of green, but it's paired with birds, 
uh, usually referred to as sea pies or oyster catchers or Cornish chows with a red cross crowned on white. And there's just a lot of bird stuff happening around Mary Malone in this chapter. So that was very exciting to me because of her bird demon. I just thought that these little birds on the crest were kind of cute. They're little pudgy white birds. Real round. And I just like that. (laughs) And the alethiometer also tells her to find the door with the mountain. And most importantly, not to lie to the scholar. And to help the boy find his father. So as she leaves these odd wooden toys that she walks past suddenly make a ringing noise. And their eyes like glow yellow and they all turn to follow her with their eyes. I also felt like this was foreshadowing for the land of the dead, in a way. I think so, with um them just following her. With those dead lies. Yeah, and familiarizing us, right, to some of the things we'll see this episode in terms of just seeing things that react to dust items. I'm telling you, just like we said last week, I'm waiting for the Doctor Who crossover. I'm waiting for the angels to come to life because they're saying that things can just get dust and move around and do shit and have matter be alive around them. That explains the weeping angels, Eliana. You don't get it yet, but you will someday. Someday. I I know that it's scary and I've seen gifts of this scary thing. And it looks someday. like a lot. A lot of feelings to feel. Oh yeah, there are a lot. Well, more feelings here. Let's start here and we'll work to Doctor Who. First, we get Lyra in the museum with Boreal and they chit-chat. He introduces himself. He's like, I'm Charles Latrum. And it seems that she does not remember him from the party. And she introduces herself, of course, as Lizzie. They talk about trepanning. He ends up offering his card to her in case she wants to learn more. He tells her that he donates items to the museum, which immediately I was like, oh, so you steal them from other worlds. And even the way they kind of yes. spoke to each other was interesting. Lyra, and I'll say this later, but she embodies Mrs. Coulter a lot in this episode in just a few different ways of just her mannerisms. And I, I just found that so interesting and really good. Just the acting was great in general. Daphne did an awesome job, but she almost regards him just like Coulter regards him. That's interesting. Yeah, with that sort of guardedness. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even when he's like, so, did you learn trepanning in school? And she's like, no, it's, like, on the card here. Yeah, total, like, it's no, right you there. It's idiot. like, Lyra wasn't paying attention in school. As we just said, she did not pay attention. <laughs> I just love that Lord Boyle's in, like, this hilarious, like, normal-ass zip-up sweater. That, that, I don't know why I find that so funny. And then, of course, Lizzie is the name that she used when she was up north. Lizzie Brooks. In Bolvanger, yes. and we hinted at this before in the trailer episodes that we did, but Boreal, right, in his introduction to Lyra, again, with the, that framing and those windows, he's coming out from behind these glass cases, which kind of ends up acting as a sort of window in a way before he reveals himself to Lyra. Yes, and uh, in the books, he's watching her from above. Right, like he's upstairs watching her over a rail is how it's presented to us. And I was kind of looking for that, thinking it would be that way, but I actually like this better. It was very sudden. She felt very like caught, like, oh, I'm so sorry. She didn't expect anyone else was there. She thought she was very alone. And he looks like a normal ass dude. Yeah, he looks very normal. The zip up sweater, like you mentioned, like he's very downplayed here. He doesn't look in his crisp magisterium suit. He is just chilling. He's wearing loungewear. I like it. It's a good look on you, Lord Boreal. 
And mm-hmm. I do want to circle back to the skulls and the trepanning. Uh, we did see in the preview for episode three that Joe Pari does have a scar on his head up in the upper top of his forehead, similar to what we're seeing here on these skulls with the trepanning holes. So I am glad to see they did give him a little trepanning scar. Yeah. Then we go to Will's journey in Oxford. He's checking in on his mom. Mum, though, if you are English. (laughs) Will is checking in on his mom at Mr. Hanway's house, and while he watches her from around the yard, he is texting her, saying that he's safe, and we see her telling Mr. Hanway that Will will be in touch soon, looking very relieved. Yeah, which is good. And first of all, of course, like Will is looking at his mother through a window, so that feels significant, especially with a couple of the other foreshadowing elements we're going to get this episode. But also, I just want to call out the the heater-looking thing, the little, many pipes thing at this teacher's house. I assume it's a heater, and it just looks cool. You, That's it. You know, you said it, and I didn't even notice it, so now I have to go back and notice it. I like the idea of, like, I mean, maybe many houses have that sort of heating apparatus, but I'm just, like, very stylish <laughs> into it. Also stylish is the home of Will's shitty grandparents, but we're not there yet. Will's first going to jog off to learn about them. And before we get there, we're, we're going to stop in with some of our other family members, Rita and Serafina. Serafina says that we can't get drawn into all these like little revenge schemes and says that she sent Martin Lancelius to clean up this mess. Ruta argues, though, that, I mean, for all of what you're saying, I protected the prophecy and that we need to unite the nine witch clans against the Magisterium and the way that this world is changing. Serafina is very concerned because she can't reach to find the child, Baby Yoda. But, <laughs> and that liar seems to be beyond the veil. Interesting because we talked with Lo last episode and we weren't really quite sure how far their telepathy reaches. So it seems that Serafina yeah. can also regard Lyra. I'm guessing yeah. if they try, they can try to reach people they know. I don't know. Yeah, it might just be like a concentration thing. Yeah. You know, can you call them? Maybe this is another another smartphone and signal mm-hmm. sort of reference thing. I don't think I'm really even joking in saying no, this. No, it might be. Yeah. Well, and that's the other worlds. Absolutely. I think that is the comparison. She's beyond a veil. She's in another realm. And there's something else kind of interesting that's being adapted here. So in the actual book, The Subtle Knife, Serafina has a crazy whirlwind chapter, and this is all her alone. She goes, she deals with freeing the witch from the Magisterium, she kills Cardinal Sturak herself, she then flies off to chit-chat with Martin Lancelius, who is like, turns out that could have been bad what you did, the war's brewing, the Magisterium has an army, and then Serafina flies off to Thorold, Asriel's servant, to learn where Lyra may have gone. So they end up splitting this up. Ruta gets the first part, Lancelius goes to the Magisterium, and Coulter ends up going to get Thorold. Most of this works. I have my complaints about Thorold, which we'll get to, but most of this works. So I think it's a really bang-up job. Good call. I agree with you. I'm I'm interested to hear what you say about the Thorold areas. Yeah. Some of what's going on here, I, I also like that they've, you know, in terms of splitting things up, that they've given Ruta, again, more of a role, and I like that they are giving her the role of being the one to call for the witches to unite, as opposed to Serafina. It it, in, it brings in some of this conflict mm-hmm. there that can be resolved soon, uh, based on what happens in this episode. And you can kind of start to see how the attack at the e- this episode will play out in a couple of ways. 
I also like that in this exchange here, right, we have this imagery, again, of trees, but a little differently. The trees are long and thin, mm. and they're in this world of, they're in this place, right, of, of this forest in which the trees create that, again, visual motif of those stripes and those lines that are reminiscent of those worlds side by side, but also of some of the graphics that we'll see later when Lyra's communing with us or Mary Malone's communing with us, but just played off, of course, a little differently, a little digitally as opposed to naturally. The only thing we didn't really get to cover yet here is that the actual vapors that are rising and the, the fog that's mm. rising, I'm wondering if that's going to be increasing in the next episode uh, because they were present. The, the fog was present, but it wasn't the actual problem. The fog in the very first couple of chapters of The Subtle Knife is an ever-pressing problem. So I'm wondering, right. and obviously it gets likened to the specters as well. So I'm wondering how that's going to come up slash be resolved. We'll, we'll see. I have faith. Yeah. I have faith, unlike yeah. Oliver Payne. You know, ye of little faith. <laughs> that was a good moment. We'll, we'll get to that. But before we get to Oliver Payne, we're going to meet his colleague. It's Lyra and Mary entering St. Peter's College. There's amazing use of glass windows here. Lyra literally gets lost on the way in because of the reflections and the glass and all of the light. She ends up going down a hall, finding Mary's door, and she's like, I won't lie to him. I won't lie to the scholar pan. Settle down because he was warning her not to. So I thought that was fun to call out that, of course, Lyra thought it was a boy scholar. But no, we get yes. Mary Malone's entrance, and she is... Of course, playing with birds, much like our friend Cassidy over at our Discord on Patreon. Uh, Mary Malone is playing with wrens. They come back every year, she says, cyclically. I love that. It's, it's not an alpine chew, but it's close, and it's some really cute foreshadowing towards her demon. Wrens are small and inconspicuous, uh. and in old high German, their name often meant king. So, Mary Malone hmm. and birds, a perfect way to open Mary's arc. That's a great that's a great connection. Yeah. I just like Lyra coming into the college. I, I don't know if it was that she was like getting lost there, but she was just like, so I can just walk in. <laughs> <laughs> just walking in and maybe she was like, Wow, there's a lot of glass here, fancy and just like interesting. <laughs> Kinda of funny. We do end up cutting out the scene, right, where Lyra has to lie to the receptionist to get in. But I think this this is fine. Yeah. She's <laughs> just like, whatever. This is fine. And Lyra asks for a physicist once she enters the office, and Mary's like, well, I do. And again, as you were saying, Mary is a female scholar, and Lyra's like, wow, amazing. Imagine if she had only looked to Hannah Ralph instead of Mrs. Coulter, we never would have been in this mess meeting Mary Malone. Yes, but she was she was entranced by the golden monkey instead of the adorable, hilarious little Jasper face. Little marmoset. Little marmoset. But our Hannah Ralph right now in the flesh is Mary Malone. And this is such a cool, we got Mary Malone. I know. Ah. And she was fantastic entrance. I think everyone that I've seen so far is just so, so enraptured by Simone Kirby's performance. She's done a great job. And I know that other people, they, they thought that this was really obvious. I'm not someone who picked up on it reading they were like yes of course she's irish it makes perfect sense and that they had actually always some of them had actually always envisioned her as being irish and reading the books and uh because of that last name alone and her background as a nun and that um as people have talked about the really strong ties with catholicism in irish culture and 
our friends Warren and Shadow Fox also brought up their associations with Mary Malone as perhaps being inspired by her name perhaps being inspired by the song Molly Malone. This is a song it's like something in the city and I'm not gonna sing it. I thought about singing it and oh then I forgot the tune. Yes, the Dubliners do it. Do it. Uh, in Dublin's fair city where the girls are so pretty, I first set my eyes on sweet Molly Malone. Yeah, it makes sense. Yes. It's a it's a cool call out for them. Good for them. I'm happy for them. I am. Lyra asks Mary Malone, can you please explain dust? And Mary Malone's like, uh, what? <laughs> and it takes a little bit of conversing for them to get on the same page because, of course, you know, Lyra tries to tell a limited version of her story while telling no lies. This is really, really difficult for Lyra, perhaps almost as difficult as putting down the cookie later. And then finally, Lyra says, I need you to tell me about the particles that you study, please. Yes, just the entire... Poor Lyra. First of all, she's so tired, right? Like, someone let that girl <laughs> eat her stale-ass cookie and take a nap. Oh my god. But she tells her story kind of, like, in these limited clips that don't make sense. And she's like, no, no, I'm telling it all wrong. And you can just tell she's so tired. And there, the way that she does tell the story and explain to her, I lost my friend, you need to help me. Um, it does have a little bit of, again... Not in a bad way, but it has that Coulter manipulation vibe to it that she does with people at the Magisterium, but here it's being used for good as a weapon by Lyra. She's wielding it for good. Uh, she kind of just looks at her and says, please, the emphasis she puts on please is killer. We can also really see Lyra's desperation here. As you said, she's just bowling through all this information at once, and I think that's very classic, right? That's a thing that's consistent in her character, if we'll remember, you know, in the first season where she just suddenly comes to Fardercorum and tells her him all the things that are going on here about Yorick and everything, and Fardercorum's like, oh my god, please chill out. <laughs> what? What? That was a lot of information all at once. And yeah, I, that desperation, I know that there are people who feel that Daphne Keen played this a little differently than I think we imagine Lyra being presented to do this in the books, but I think that the tone is very different too. Mm -hmm for a number of reasons, such as that emphasis on Roger and his loss and how we're keeping that thread in this in this version. And I also think it makes sense because like Daphne Keen's a little older than the Lyra that we're used to. And I mean, it, I just think it's harder to play that sort of precocious role um, when you are a little older than, than at around 11 or 12 years old, you're still kind of cute then. Mm -hmm. So so I think that all makes sense to me. But regarding Roger, it's something that I'm really glad that we've kept it in the last episode and this one that needs to have weight in this story. And I think that the show has given it more weight than there is in the books in the way that really works. And it's caused me to like rethink right the way that it plays in Lyra's story and her motivations, especially in the third book and the decisions she makes. Because I think it gives some insight into like why Philip Pullman sees Lyra leaving Pan as the great prophecy betrayal when all of us are like, what? why the fuck would you say that? It was like literally there in the first book. Mm -hmm. We all read it. We all saw it. And it's because, you know, Lyra feels so much guilt over betraying Roger and that's what ends up betraying, leading to her betraying herself. Both of those really are connected. Yeah, they're keeping it really prominent and it's very important the way that they're keeping it prominent. 
I'm really glad about that because I, and I don't even think it's uh, better done than the book so much as just it's a better translation when they do it on screen. We get it through Lyra's POV yeah. and it doesn't feel as important. The asides to Pan don't seem as important, but the way she's anchoring it to the people and saying, I did this and what we'll get into with Will later. I mean, that was heart wrenching, right? To watch her say, like, I betrayed someone. Will, I can't do that to you, too. Um, yeah, this episode got yeah. me. This episode got me. You know, did I cry? Yes. Yeah. She's growing up. She's learning that there are consequences for people, right? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, she learned that in the worst way possible. Most of us don't have our best friend die. Yeah. From, you know, accidentally delivering them to our parent that we think is trustworthy. So now we go to one of those parents, not the one that uh, killed our best friend, but the other one that killed another kid. That we knew. Who killed a lot, a lot of, of other, other kids. kids that we knew, actually. A different parent. So back to the magisterium. Back to business. Back to politics. Marisa and Boreal are discussing the current situation of Cardinal. And Boreal kind of gets some information on her motives. Marisa says McPhail's only competition is Father Graves. Graves has been on a crusade arresting half the North. And she thinks that people like his bold actions. Boreal says he thinks Coulter would be a better Cardinal than either of them and mentions they're holding Azriel's manservant in the dungeons. He asks if she's had news of Azriel or of her daughter. He then asks if her daughter's demon has settled yet, and Coulter tells him that is absolutely none of his business. None of his business at yeah. all. What a skeezy question. That's like asking if your daughter's had her first period. That's literally what that is. Like, that's... It's a Malcolm Polstead kind of move <gasps> there. No wonder she is <laughs> piercing him with her eyes uh, at this exact moment, and... There's a lot going on here. I think there's some setup even right there. The way that he says you'd be a better cardinal than either of them shows that he kind of has this loyalty to Marisa. Uh, he's ensnared by her charms. And I think that right there is the very beginning of watching his downfall. Yeah, that's interesting. He's ensnared by her, but also that's his way of tr right, trying to cozy up to her. Mm -hmm. He's doing a couple of things. He's negging her with, his with her daughter and also flattering her and honestly fantastic acting on both their parts right um ruth's acting the way her eyes pierce boreal is just incredibly done right she when he asks how her daughter is the look on her face her expression does not change at all nothing actually moves yet somehow you can see that shift mm -hmm. in her in her like demeanor and maybe her eyes somehow it shifts from kind of like amusement and we're like having a playful banter and it hardens into that displeasure and almost content for him and i think that's something that we've seen ruth do as mrs coulter even in the first season and she's just fantastic at conveying again those small shifts which really work for a character like mrs coulter who has done a lot mm -hmm. to mask her emotions she's the lena heady of this show yeah. yes she's the lena heady of this show i mean it's for real and even as you mentioned that, it sets up also the blackmail possibility later. He knows where her daughter is. He's playing a game. Yes. He knows all of this. And that becomes kind of a blackmail to her. Like, do you want to see your daughter? I know where she is, which I'm sure we are going to get more elaboration on in episode three. And that will come to play. But it also highlights that blackmail that she then lays down on Cardinal McPhail later. Mm. Yes, it it does. All comes around, everyone's fucking over each other, but Dr. Lancelius especially is fucked over right now. Oh. He comes here to the Magisterium as a peace envoy. Yes, he shows up and he tries to explain Ruda acted alone. 
but McPhail calls him a spy, claiming the witches sent him as a spy. Lancelius argues this is untrue, that he was sent to broker peace, and Father Graves asks to question him. Father Graves is permitted. He asks Lancelius to explain his position as the witches' counsel. Lancelius explains he grew up in the lakes amongst the witches until his demon settled, and then he left home, as his mother was trying to spare him from undertaking the separation ritual. Father Graves calls this unnatural, saying, What sort of woman would send her child away? Is this not all a perversion of all that is natural, as the camera focuses on Mrs. Coulter? Yeah, I want to point out, you know, Dr. Lancelius here saying, you know, you're not going to find any evidence of this conspiracy because there is none. <laughs> Nothing happened between, like, me and Ruda. And if I don't, if that isn't a message for these days here in the United States, mm-hmm. I don't know what is. <sighs> Things are going great. Um but, you know, coming back to this idea of what sort of mother would send her child away and that focus on Mrs. Coulter, they're doing quite a bit of that, right? This episode enlightening Mrs. Coulter to the witches, or at least how the Magisterium seems to perceive witches. And at the start of the episode, during that funeral for the Cardinal, as they're condemning the witch who stabbed and killed the Cardinal, as we know, yes, Ruta Scotti actually stabbed him, but the person who really delivered the killing blow is Mrs. Coulter, as we see when she's conspiring. There's evidence for that, you know, conspiring with Father McPhail. So in fact, that speech and that voiceover is very much her. It's zoomed in on her face. She's the quote-unquote witch there. And then here we're reminded of mothers sending their children away. And of course, yes, yes, Mrs. Coulter, the, the parallels are quite clear. And then there's the connection that, Chloe, you've been bringing up, right, in the previous episodes of how Mrs. Coulter seems to be able to separate from her demon or go much further from her demon than others, as the witches, as we see, do. And then there are a lot of those dangers that Father Graves talks about when it comes to witches, right, that they're very seductive and all these things that actually we've seen Mrs. Coulter do using her powers of seduction. She wields her sexuality in a way that plays on men's desires. We saw that sort of weird scene in the first episode of this season. And we've also discussed previously how Father McPhail, right, never seems to fall for Mrs. Coulter's sorts of charms or or seduction. But I think it's because back then she never actually offered anything that he desired, right? Because he doesn't desire women's attention. He didn't lust after her. What he actually coveted, turns out, this whole time was to be cardinal, that sort of power. And it's only when that opportunity opens that Mrs. Coulter is finally able to jump on that and find and offer what he desires in order to control him. And then as she does in this episode, get what she wants. Yes, I really like what you're saying about Mrs. Coulter. And I don't have anything I can chat with you about it until you finish The Secret Commonwealth. And then maybe we can have a grown up <laughs> discussion. But I'm wow. also curious where the collectors might fit into all of this. That's my next thought, mm. because it sounded like you were trying to convince me of something for a minute there, and I was like, yes, go on, Eliana. What else are you trying to say about this? But you just didn't go where I thought you were. So close. It's because I'm too young. I know. Someday, when you're dustier. I'm too I'm too clean. Undusty. Okay, well, hopefully you fucking fallen snow virgin will get there. Um, <laughs> what? Here is the fallen snow, Eliana. Something you did say that made me think about this in a little different of a way is Father Graves, he asks if he can question Lancelius, and Lancelius Mm -hmm. uh, and him go back and forth, but then you see later, as we get through it, MacPhail is calling with the gavel and trying to hold order, so 
Mm-hmm. We see Graves step up and use his words, which Marisa had, of course, says to McPhail, use your actions. You know, he's a big man of big words, and he uses his words to impress all these men in the chamber that have to vote that evening. And McPhail realizes, this guy's going to beat me if I don't do something. So this is kind of what leads him to kind of give in and follow and yes. sin, as we learn. But I, I didn't really think about the way that Graves steps up here and just tries to take the floor from him in his own area. Yeah, and I, I like, you know, speaking of people's acting, Mr. Daphne Keene's father does a great oh, job God, yeah. here. Um, and he, he does like a thing, right? When 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 Father Graves is like going off on his thing, he kind of it's kind of like a rolling of the eyes, but he like looks off in a way and you can see the, the disdain of he's like, Oh my fucking god. <laughs> Who hasn't been there? <laughs> like, right? why is this happening right now? <laughs> like this is so annoying. So Graves goes on and he calls the separation ritual unnatural, and Lancelius disagrees, calling it beautiful, and then he explains it. There is a land far north where only the witches can go, and to become a witch, a girl must cross it alone. It allows separation without breaking the soul. So, as I mentioned up top, we will spoil a little bit of Serpentine only because the show already did. This is kind of an interesting add to lore. If you hadn't read the new novella Serpentine that Pullman just published, you might not necessarily be familiar with this. In Serpentine, Lancelius explains to Lyra, Every witch has to go through it or not live a full witch life. There are some who can't or who won't and their sisters pity them, though those who can't do it pity themselves more. Their lives are not happy. Lancelius explains that witches have to go to a deserted place that I won't spoil where it is, and the demons are prepared for this. While it's scary and awful, witches' demons live their whole life knowing this day would come which is why for Lyra and Pan, there might be an effect that's a little different since they didn't know this would ever happen to them. I thought it was spectacular they chose to wove this in through the man we hear it from in Serpentine, no less. And it's a pretty decent-sized reveal about the witches, how they live, how they love. Serpentine tells us if a witch doesn't complete the ritual, she only lives a normal lifespan. Something I found a little bit different in the presentation here is how he described his younger life and leaving. I find it really well done with that inner cutting of Coulter into the scene. No pun intended, mm-hmm. inner cutting. Uh, there there oh. are only female witches in this world, as we've discussed, and the males can't become witches, semi-explained in this world. So it makes sense Lancelius becomes the witch's consul. He was very well versed in this world, and he can navigate witches without having quite the same powers as them. But it also kind of foreshadows, especially here in this scene, in this episode, for the Amber Spyglass plot, right? So it's a really good Mm -hmm. double hitter of giving some lesser-known, his dark materials knowledge delivered in a not-canon, but a really well-adapted scene. Yeah, that's a great point, that it's it's setting us up for that possibility in the third season, slash Amber Spyglass. So, Father Graves is like, the witches have been hiding this ritual in secrecy for ages, and Lancelius is like, it's not... Everyone knows it. You can, like, look it up. Go to a library. You ever been to one? No, he doesn't say that, but he kind of maybe feels it. He, like, tries to explain that, like, anyone can see them be done. And Graves goes on to then call the witches the enemy of men and that they use deceitful ways to seduce them and steal men's seed. Really describing them as succubus, but, like, your semen's not that cool, all right? Just saying that. And then abandon their offspring. And then Silas says that witches see the world and its beauties in ways that men cannot. And then everyone there is, like, really offended by this. They're like, 
but hashtag not all men. <laughs> Graves begins to call it blasphemy and screams it. And then McPhail is like, oh my god, I'm so done with Order. this. And is just banging his gavel. Oh my god, how dare, how dare you say I, a man, can't see something. I can see everything, I'm a man! Made by God. So rude. Of course everyone wants my semen. How dare you say they don't want my semen? Uh, white men. Uh, Mick Fail stands up and thanks Father Graves and condemns the blasphemy Lancelius speaks, ordering him to eight years of hard labor and demon captivity. Our friend Lo, who joined us last week, speaks a lot of the Sami and the suffering they've been put through as a people, as many other indigenous peoples, especially in the North. And this episode, quite obviously had a lot about oppression in it, uh, and I think the writers did their due diligence on this. The Magisterium sentencing a peace envoy to labor camps really reinforces some of the World War II parallels with the Sami. The Sami people never formed borders of their own. They, they didn't want to be an independent nation. They were a peaceful people that happened to live near Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia, and they had resources and land people can steal. The idea of fighting over land and borders was probably foreign at first to the Sami because they literally did not have a country of their own. It wasn't uncommon in the war to have groups of Sami actually fighting each other for different sides, like Sami on the Russian side and Sami on the Finnish sides. Eventually, many of the Sami were evacuated from the war and they were put into prison camps for the German. Later, the Finnish troops invade the German-occupied areas of Finland and they attempt to force them out, but the German declare war and then they scorch the entire earth burning every building except for a few in the outlying districts and laying mines as well to deter, to deter the people. Again, I think they did their homework. Uh, as we get toward the end of the episode, we'll take a closer look at the Magisterium with the witches. Setting up Lancelius as a captive is going to be a strong plot point, I think, for a few things. I think this was kind of a smart way to use his character. Serafina sent him as a peace envoy, so now she probably has to get him saved which means we'll see some more witch versus magisterium standoff soon. And this pushes her hand in the war. As we knew, she would have to be pushed a little bit. She was set up as that centrist, okay. but this is going to push her hand. And if this doesn't, as we see their lands being blown up, does. Yeah, and I, as you were saying earlier about Father Graves, right, and he used to arrest a bunch of witches, Father McPhail is like, I'll do you one better. I'll kill them, essentially. He doesn't say that, but bombing, I mean, bombing sounds a very clear message. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> just just a bit. Just just a bit. Um, less clear is the sort of messages that Will gets when he goes to the family lawyer. I don't know, I thought it was pretty clear. Okay, no, you're right. I just made a really bad second. <laughs> I just wanted to call I you out really on that. Tried. You know? I just wanted to... You know, Eliana, I think it's pretty clear what, what messages the lawyer gives, and the lawyer's like, you're still poor and I can't help you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the lawyer actually tells Will... When he visits his family lawyer, the lawyer's like, yeah, actually, you do have money. You're a trust fund baby, but I can't give you any because you're a minor and your grandparents hate your mom. The lawyer doesn't say that, but I'm saying that. Yes. Maybe that's the less clear message. Again, I just wanted thought I could nail the segue and (laughs) I did not. (laughs) It's hit or miss every episode. This scene, though, and we're going to see that throughout this episode, as we did in the previous seasons, and throughout Will's characterization in general, plays up his whole parentified child aspect as Will attempts to do... It's a very adult thing that he's trying to do, right? He's here, he's visiting the lawyer, but he's literally not able to because he's a minor. It's like, what are you doing, Will? That's what adults probably think, and it's quite sad. 
Especially when, you know, he finds out that his grandparents are here in Oxford. He's like, what? And the lawyer does give him the grandparents' address. We go back to Mary and Lyra, who are asking questions about matter to each other. And Mary explains dark matter to her, the matter in between everything. Yes. So we were talking a bit earlier about that Lyra channeling Mrs. Coulter in this episode, but I think we start to see a little bit of her and Mary, Mm. right? Because Mary is another sort of mother figure to Lyra, and we see that mirroring of their characters in the wardrobe. In the first season, we saw that Mrs. Coulter kind of tried to fit Lyra into this mold of who Mrs. Coulter wanted her to be in, like, these dresses, these blue dresses especially, that matched Mrs. Coulter's own. But here now, Lyra's in... A sort of blazer. She just coincidentally actually happened to find this blazer. It's quite nice. She's finding some pretty nice clothes in this place where she and Bill are squatting. And and she's got this blue blazer in the way that Mary Malone also has a blue blazer. It, it, it's kind of fun. Also, I think Mary Malone is wearing... They look like Converse, her trainers. They are, are they Converse's, Converse? yes. Her trainers. Yes. Did you like that? I love that detail. Some other people... I know some people... I was kind of offended. My best friend once was like, yeah, but this thing had converses and I don't wear converses. And I was like, what What? what do you got against oh converses God. as a converse We had a whole person. homecoming themed group where we wore converse. Did you even live? You know, did you ever yeah. live? I was a big converse person. So I was like, what What are you trying to say? What are you saying? God. Is that, what did you think of me all these years? <laughs> Back to Mary and Lyra. Mary explains what shadow particles are to Lyra and that they have a detector in the cave that will amplify these particles. And we get to see some of Mary's testing as she explains it to Lyra. She says that man-made items provided more particles than non-man-made items. I thought that was a great Mm. note. Uh, We see a notebook that has some formulas and on the other side it explains the human workmanship theories. So some of those formulas that are in the notebook, again... I hit up my friends who are physicists to help me understand this because, again, I'm not a physicist, which is why I'm going to tell you that. So the formulas that are on there, some of it you can actually see in the title at the top where it says polarization tensor. That is what the formula, especially I think on the left side, is. And then some of the other formulas are about like electric fields and dielectrics. Thank you to our friends. And like that's all I'm going to really tell you about that because I could try to explain to you what this means, <laughs> but I would just be copying words from the internet and you're better off Googling it yourself because I don't know what it means. You gave it a good run, though. You know, Eliana, I, I feel like I learned something new. God. <laughs> yes. Learned something new about, I guess, me and that. So Interesting. Yeah, I didn't feel like it was very detailed as far as the formulas went on the polarization tensor. So that's interesting, though. Electric fields, I guess, you know, it makes sense. The sensing of the consciousness, yeah. right? Especially Parameters. We, we've discussed in previous yeah, episodes, you know, waves and particles and, and what consciousness might be. So we got some other things that we've talked about, actually, like the Yijing box. Oh, my gosh. I was so excited mm-hmm. that they showed that immediately. Uh, and we, yeah, it's just very exciting that they're adapting something so honestly. And more than just the easing box, the first thing Mary is testing on is an apple. Yes. I was like, oh, the fruit of the garden? Is that what you're testing mm-hmm. on there, Mary? I was freaking out at this scene. This scene was so cool. Uh, and she actually... Great symbolism. Such great symbolism. She actually then looks through a piece of amber when she first gets her first view of dust. Yes. It was, she looked through a piece of amber. A piece of amber 
the amber spyglass. Oh my god. Uh, we, we see the screen making contact. It looks like the lines of dust from the intro, like we mentioned. They're moving. And then she explains to Lyra, you can't see them unless you put your mind into the right state. She compares it to Keats's negative capability. She says that holding your mind in a state of expectation without impatience and then the particles flock to your thoughts like words. Yes. Yeah, I loved uh, that she was holding that little piece of electrum as she was pondering in that moment. And yes, so we talked a lot about negative capability and Keats during our coverage of the subtle knife in chapters three through four. And Keats describes it as capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. And that quote, literally more or less that line, is what Keats has. And it was kind of like an artistic philosophy about this openness to ideas. In the same letter where Keats describes negative capability, he also contrasts Shakespeare and the poet Samuel Coleridge. Of course, he himself also a, a poet. John Keats felt that Coleridge... Uh, was interested more in like these single philosophical truths and that his work would argue towards that, whereas he felt that Shakespeare was different, contrasted, that Shakespeare was more interested in many different kinds of philosophies and would explore a lot of that, would bring those different arguments and truths in different voices and wouldn't exactly say that one was right or that the other was. And I think that it seems like as we've discussed back then, it seems like this concept of exploring different ideas. And that exploration, of course, makes a lot of sense in this story, right? That is really interested in explorers like Asriel or Stanislaus Grumman, Hoomst. And other later scholars have interpreted this line about naked negative capability as about perhaps like breaking against hierarchy, which again, you know, kind of works in the story that's maybe like about killing God, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know if Keats was actually about, like, that breaking of hierarchy or not, but clearly, you know, Pullman seems to be quite quite so between this and his Twitter account. <laughs> I, I actually really like that about Keats, that a lot of the reason why he so thoroughly discussed negative capability and fulfilled the topic of it and made it such a big deal is because he critiqued the other work of these genres. And, you know, if you haven't taken the time to read it, Pullman has actually done a really beautiful introduction to Paradise Lost. Uh, completely kind of not, I wouldn't say it doesn't relate to his dark materials, obviously, since it's part of what inspired his dark materials, but it uh, it's a really refreshing piece where he has this line, many poems are interrogated until they confess, and what they confess is usually worthless, as the results of torture always are, broken little scraps of information, platitudes, banalities. Negative capability, to me, plays a lot on that on that negative polarity of the poet and he who holds the pen or the quill. It's been elaborated through history, as you mentioned, for centuries to come. If you're looking for a modern Keats take, by the way, me and Eliana were discussing this before, I recommend Bob Dylan because he is Keats with the guitar, as many call him. Uh, bringing it all back home in Blonde on Blonde are probably my favorite albums. If you're looking for a couple songs you might be into, try I Want You, Visions of Johanna, it's all right, Ma, I'm only bleeding. Those are some really beautiful poetic songs. But we're not here to chat Bob Dylan as much as I want to be. We're here to talk about the 20th century British psychoanalyst Wilfred Byan. He had some very interesting thoughts that work specifically in some of the framework of this episode. Byan felt that the ability to tolerate pain and confusion of not knowing 
rather than imposing ready-made or omnipotent certainties upon a situation or challenge was negative capability. I think this comes up a lot in the Magisterium's reading and refusal to read of magic and the world around them, even as we saw in the last episode, right, of where the blasphemy was being declared about different worlds, but you could look out the window and see it. I also do think it's visible in, for example, tarot reading. If you're getting a tarot reading and you're projecting what you want to read on it, or Hmm. someone who writes a character falling in love with another character, and then the other characters all suddenly agree it's a good idea, even though some of the characters naturally would have objections to it it's unnatural ethically to display that and not have that path of the story be told but then to lie at the end and say that was the story the whole time it's a little cheap right but i digress i'm not talking about malcolm polstead lyra this is letting it i was like is that is this is this what i think it is this is letting it be right when poetry is made it flows and it comes to a natural progression uh you're not forcing it you're not stopping it from getting there earlier we spoke about elizabethan flute songs Dowlin's I Saw My Lady Weep has an unnatural conclusion, not just from its musical tone, but also from its writing. It concludes love conquers reason. But when we have Lyra reading the alethiometer, as we later have her saying to Will, it tells her the truth, good or bad. As Lyra is about to explain to Mary, that's what dust is. I I think that's a great connection that uh, it's neither good nor bad. It's just the truth. It's just what's being held there. And yes. It's a it's a state of just being, mm-hmm. is what it seems to be, uh, that that state of mind. And then you know, Mary asks, "Wait, Lyra, how do you know about my work? Because it's unpublished." Lyra reveals that she's been the federal investigation of Dust Bureau in one of, of course, Chloe's favorite scenes in this episode. <laughs> Mary thinks that the alethiometer must be a game, and Lyra's like, "Excuse me," <laughs> Lyra's like, "It's not a game." Uh, ask me anything. You think this is a game? <laughs> ask me anything, Mary Malone. And Mary's like, fine, tell me what I did before I became a scientist. The alethiometer answers. She was a nun, but stopped believing when she left. Lyra comments they would never let you do that in my world, and she explains the magisterium in her world want to destroy dust or matter. They see it as original sin. Mary is astonished and says, well, I left being a nun to get away from that kind of thing. She says people hate what they don't understand, and dark matter is honestly beautiful. Lyra asks to see the cave. So, someone that I saw, you know, I just, like, stumbled across this person on Twitter who elaborates on some of the challenges that Mary Malone might have with that funding aspect, which is, of course, going to play a role in the plot, in the chapters, and and probably episodes to follow when it comes to Oliver, but I've never really, like, thought that deeply about, like, oh, it's so hard to get funding for scientists, because, like, I just kind of take that as assumed. I'm like, yeah, it's, of course it's hard to get funding for scientists, just in general, for a lot of things, which I'm so sorry, scientists. And, again, I think of the academic who made a joke in the first season who says, I know this is a fantasy show because Lord Asriel just got all of that funding and backing immediately and it would never go that fast. (laughs) But on Twitter, Dr. Sam Henry, whose Twitter account is G7VDJ. I don't know if that means anything. Sorry if I'm doxing you, but he has his name right there and he puts his blog. So... Dr. Sam Henry actually, in our very real world, builds particle detectors at the Department of Physics at the University of Oxford, which is pretty cool. 
And he's also a big fan of this book series, and he talks about it on his blog. And I'm going to just like read aloud some of his passages where he wrote about his dark materials uh, in one of his blogs when The Book of Dust, uh, book one, was coming out, when La Belle Sauvage was coming out, and he was, I guess, excited about it. And he quotes this from Dr. Mir Malone of, Shadows are particles of consciousness. You ever heard anything so stupid? No wonder we can't get our grant renewed. And here goes the crazy part. You can't see them unless you expect to. Unless you put your mind in a certain state. And so Dr. Henry explains, I am starting to see why Dr. Malone is having trouble with her funding agency. Her description is actually more familiar to particle physicists than you might think. It's a well-established issue that when analyzing your data, it's easy to bias yourself to get the answer you want. You just keep breaking the threshold of your muon veto and adjusting your analysis parameters until you see a dark matter signal and then, Eureka! This way you fool yourself into thinking you have something when it's actually just the background from other particles. The way we deal with this is what we call a blind analysis protocol. You fix the parameters in your analysis before you look at the data, then you unblind it, run the code, and publish the result of whatever it shows. The history of dark matter research has seen enough false positives that any claim of discovery which was not in a blind analysis would be treated with extreme skepticism. And if you can't see your dark matter particles unless you expect to, it would indeed be difficult to get that through peer review. So we're going to link this blog post in our post description, but I, I, I think it's a great explanation, right? Like Dr. Malone struggling to get her funding because the way that she's describing what these particles are relies on something that people would be like, no, this is just confirmation bias. This isn't really here. And you tweaked it like so that you would see what you wanted to see intentionally. And it, it does kind of sound unscientific. Probably because it's a fantasy series, but whatever. I would like to add that Dr. Sam Henry's icon on Twitter actually has oh him with two My Little Pony caricatures with uh, Rainbow Dash, who is my favorite My Little Pony, and Twilight Sparkle. Yes. Uh, and I feel like that might be the only reason why Eliana is quoting Dr. Sam Henry. No, I'm just kidding, Eliana. That was very, very interesting. But that was more interesting to me, and I'm so sorry. I didn't even notice that. And not only that, the little figurines that he has are probably later. They're later ones because we have Alicorn version of Twilight Sparkle. I don't know what that means. That's the one where she has both her unicorn horn and her Pegasus wings oh. when she becomes an alicorn. Later season stuff. Well, Sam is into the lore, and I like that. Down with <laughs> Sam. He likes his dark. He likes ponies. We're in, Dr. Henry. You know who I don't like? Who do you not like? The Grand Perrys. The Grand Perrys? Yep. Grand Père. They suck. They literally suck. Uh, we... They, they do. We open the scene and we see photos on the nightstand. There's only one that Will is in. It's John Perry holding baby Will. And the breasts seem to be of the grandparents and John Perry's childhood. No Elaine to be seen on this mantle. They give Will the usual, When your dad went missing, we were all upset and said thoughtless things. But hey, Willie boy, you're here now. And <laughs> he boy. asks for help with his trust. Interesting. Lyra's asking for help with dust. He's asking for help with trust. Uh, the grandfather, Graham Perry, goes off and he walks away because he's like, ah, he's asking for money, bah, 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 and he's being a dick. And he immediately gets on his phone to call D.I. Walters from series one. He's still a character, still has a name. I was amazed. I was like, wow, Detective Walters? 
I forgot he had a name. I know. But yes. Thank you for reminding us of his name, <laughs> Chloe. Um, uh... Yes, he is in this, and that's probably going to come to play. That's probably why they brought him in the previously on Dark Materials stuff at the beginning. Yeah. So. Well, I was right. The grandparents sold him out to the Magisterium. Womp womp. Saw that coming. Yeah. You did. You did call that. And the grandmother offers for Will to stay with them. And Will asks, well, can his mother stay too? And then the grandparents are like, I don't know if I like that with their body language. And thinks, you know, the grandmother thinks, well, you know, she she might not be fine then. Is that the case, Will? And then Will starts getting super nervous. And he starts noticing that things are off, especially because they start talking about the police. He, like, pretends to suddenly spill his tea with his foot and then she goes to clean it up right away because she's i guess more concerned about the carpet and i think that's supposed to be that what that's signifying not just that but the stain on the carpet he's the stain on their white carpet that's what Uh. that was the the tea spill not only was it his distraction to get out of there like he did it on purpose because he knew she would care about it and he could get up and run but it was also the metaphorical stain on the white carpet Yes, of their um, perfect little home. That this is like a stain in their family history. That what happened to John, mm-hmm. and what happened with him and Elaine, and he he can tell that right. We see that Will's perceptive, and he takes this moment to run away because he realizes that there's no hope here. <laughs> so sad. Uh, he was like excited for a moment too. He was like, "Oh my god, I have grandparents here." So sad. And of course, as we've discussed, this is something that's adapted and brought into this from the lantern slides. Interestingly, you know, when Will is coming to the house, it's another moment, right, where we see him through a window. His grandmother sees him through that window, more of that framing. And I will say that uh, along with, you know, Liars looking for dust, Will's looking about this trust, it's a contrast between their two scenes because when Will's meeting up with his grandparents, right, um, Lyra is being told by the alethiometer that she needs to trust this absolute stranger and be very truthful with this person she doesn't know anything about, just met. And then Will here is with family, and family's supposed to be people that you can trust, uh, a trust, of course, and ends up having to be really guarded and lie to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, it went pretty much what you'd expect from that scene to go, honestly. And I'm glad they did yep. it. I mean, I think it's a good filler scene for Will to give us more background on him. And also, something that I think this is going to have a lot of payoff for is, you know, the end of the season when he meets his dad and briefly that is interrupted. Like, as you and I discussed in the book oh, yeah. for The Subtle Knife, I it, it I just feel like it's like so abrupt and that we don't get any time to really understand a lot of the information that we're shoved into in the past books so i think this is a great way to bring some of that family dissonance up to to the front yes well now we go back to the cave which is a badass scene this is like a little little happier this is a little more exciting the music is amazing i I want you to know that the music right here i have listened to this song that plays in the background during this scene 80 times in a row now because it's just like a banger really like you're sitting there and you feel like you have the electrodes on your uh temples but lyra's the one that's getting hooked up to the cave which we see a wall that has formulas all over it a see-through window that she's looking through to look at the actual computer and she gets hooked up to the cave with electrodes yo people love writing formulas on windows is what i'm learning Mm -hmm. in this show and it's a cool aesthetic i get it 
great choices. And as Miriam Malone goes to hook up Electrode to Lyra, she actually flinches at first, and you can really see, I think, that great holdover in terms of keeping that character consistency of the trauma that she experienced mm-hmm. in Bullfanger when they would hook kids up and then measure them with all of these different like instruments. Mm-hmm. So makes sense. But Lyra's, you know, like, you know, I'll give it a go. Then, you know, she's amazing at it and brings up all these images on the computer. Yeah, the first try she does is really minor, right? She's managing to move the dust around so it's just flowing. And Mary is amazed. Uh, Lyra had asked if it was dust and she goes, I think this means yes, Mary. Mary's astonished. So Lyra does it again. She thinks how she does with the alethiometer. This one's the ticket. The entire screen implodes with waves of dusty color. And then it begins to form into images and the music gets faster. And some of the images are actually from the alethiometer. Uh, The first image Mm -hmm. is the alpha and the omega symbol from the alethiometer, but it's overlaid. Then we get the sun. We get the angel. We get a different one, which is yin yang. Then we get the knife. And then we get Lyra offering us this dialogue. And she says, it says you're important, which this kid just keeps walking around telling people that they're important. If this little girl came up to you and she's like, I think everybody's special. Yeah, shut up, Lyra. Oh, my God. Uh, But no, Mary Malone is important. And Lyra says, you have something important to do. You have to make the connection yourself. The Chinese box you have upstairs, you'll need it where you're going. And the last image is the hourglass, which reminds Lyra, oh, shit, I can't set alarms on my Android (laughs) alethiometer. So off she runs, promising to come back the next day. Honestly... Like I said, I I don't know. I would like an alethiometer, but at the same time, smartphones are pretty great. <laughs> so, interestingly, right, the cave doesn't speak to Lyra solely in that vocabulary of those 36 images that are on the alethiometer, as you said, and uses those other symbols, such as that of the Yijing box, uh, the lines around the, the yin-yang, and even the subtle knife makes an appearance and you know the alethiometer actually does have a symbol for sword but that's not what we're shown here because we see that knife that has that twist that we all know is a subtle knife because we have trailers and again a lot of that um bonus content around the show and it's also in the opening credits so we've all seen it we all know because how can you not watch the opening credits it's amazing every time and I find this very interesting from a linguistic aspect, which again, I'm not a linguist, but we've discussed in previous episodes, especially in our coverage of Northern Lights and the Golden Compass, that the alethiometer actually has its own language. And these are, and it has these chains of language as you go down the ladders of meaning. There are these semantic neighborhoods. It it refers to ideas like semantic neighborhoods and those associations. And Lyra herself even describes it as communing with dust. Like She calls it a language, the language of pictures, Uh, versus verbal language, which is the words that she says that Mary Malone can make this do. And in this way, Lyra is actually acting, I would say, in the role of a translator. And we also don't know anything about the actual syntax structure or the conjugation or anything that happens with the language of the alethiometer it mostly seems to i don't know this is a guess maybe have like adjectives and nouns because she's like this means this thing and and it's the rest is just sort of intimated in terms of you know maybe how it works but we find that in the cave as lyra gets up and realizes that she's late it's because again of that hourglass which is a pretty obvious symbol for time i think we all kind of know it uh, and associate it with that and how she's late And then again, that subtle knife, which comes to represent Will, 
through a literary device called metonymy, and that's the replacement of an object or thing with something closely related to it rather than explicitly calling it that. So, for example, it's like using the word suits, right, to mean businessmen, or perhaps for this crowd when people would say, like, the Iron Throne, instead of saying, like, oh, the actual power and claim over all of the Seven Kingdoms and the monarchy. Or even maybe even using words like the authority to refer to God or this hierarchical structure, his rules and his will. So... It's very interesting for Lyra to know that this knife, the specific knife, means will and how closely associated that they are when we actually even haven't been introduced to the knife yet. Yeah, that's great. And I found the overlaid ones the most interesting, like the alpha and the omega as one, and then that it's mirrored with Mm -hmm. the yin-yang to explain to them, like almost like it's saying, this is what I'm trying to tell you, yin-yang. Like, I'm trying to speak to you in terms you guys might understand. Uh, I I just like the idea of it communicating, and I like the way they showed it. Yeah, I like that they brought in other images, because, like, why not? Mm -hmm. You know, we have a whole computer here. We don't have to only do that. And it's also there for speaking to the audience, not just Lyra. And the branding is the other thing I wanted to comment on with the alethiometer symbols. Like Like you said, that the sword looks like the knife, but obviously the slight twist to it. Even back to those flyers that she was pulling, all of the branding is very streamlined and similar. Like, it's just very neatly done. All of the different marketing stuff they've done for the show and the fonts they're using and the colors. And the, it's uh, yeah. very cleanly cut. And I really like that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I know he, people have probably talked about this already, but it all comes together, right? Like, they're creating a visual language within the show. And like what we see on the cave screen, mm-hmm. it's a lot of the same same lines. And I think everyone was like, whoa. I was like, whoa, it's a thing from the opening <laughs> sequence, from the opening credits when it showed up. And then like the, all the lines and how they have it plucking, mm-hmm. like the rest of the lines and the and the stripes throughout the opening credits. Just there's a lot of love. I think you can tell that there's a lot of love in this show. Yeah, it reminds me of Windows Media Player back in the 90s and in the <laughs> early 2000s. We used to be able to put it onto the music mode where the, the beat would make yeah. the different things crest and fall on the screen, the visual mode. That's what it reminds me of. I spent a lot of time watching that yep, for too. no reason. Yep. I'm glad. <laughs> I was like, what else am I going to do? I don't know. Be angsty and teenage. <laughs> Whatever. Um, here, Lyra's a little less angsty. Will's the one who's angsty. But as she realizes she's late, she runs from St. Peter's College and she's running across this green, right? And it's not her Oxford, right? It's not her Jordan, but that very imagery kind of really reminded me of the opening scenes of this series um, in, in in season one, those first few episodes where she's running across the Jordan green with Roger and they're playing and being kids or running after Azriel and it made me sad. Yeah, it was perfect because of course it's paralleled with Will waiting for her and the conversation they're about to have. Yep. But first, we stop with Coulter and Father McPhail. They walk after the proceedings, and she pushes him, telling him he needs to go further and act before the trials are terminated. She says Graves is a man of big words. McPhail must be a man of big actions. She tells him to show strength if he wants the cardinalship. And then we get to... The bench! The bench. Uh. The bench. <sighs> Will is upset with Lyra, who's teeming with dust talk from Mary... Of course, she's late. He thought she had been caught. 
he explains that he waited for her even though police and bad people are looking for him and she needs to be careful and mind him. Yes, and you know, Lyra has a hard time thinking about Will's needs in general, which is why she steals his bed <laughs> in the first episode and makes him an omelette with eggs in it. But Will's been through a lot, but besides Lyra's cooking, last season... Jack Thorne on Twitter did a great job of pointing out, again, Will as this parentified child who has had to care for his mother, as opposed to his mother being the one who can really care for him. And all of this episode, I think we really see how that manifests in Will's characterization and the way that he worries about Lyra and cares, like, for example, for her knee when she gets hurt and tends to her wounds. And I think there's an aspect of this behavior, right? That's just really ingrained in him. And I way that I don't know is actually very healthy. It's very reflexive because that's what he's just been taught to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes through here in the way that he also blows up at Lyra for being late. That's the other side of the parentified child coin because Will has just like undergone a lot of very triggering moments that would recall his past trauma from A, finding out that all the adults around him are untrustworthy and having to lie to protect his mother to the anxiety about you know this information that's in his household and how his house got broken into because of all of that along with of course the police being called on him and again those un authority figures that are supposed to protect him being untrustworthy so there ends up being an aspect in will scolding lyra where he plainly states right that he himself is also in danger from the police and his desire to hide, which he told Lyra at the very beginning of this episode and Lyra didn't really pay much mind to, uh, but at least we got her to not wear the cape. <laughs> but there's also, I think, very much an aspect of Will's anxiety and reaction to Lyra and him blowing up at her, which I think is also a reflex from his mother, sometimes either showing up to places unexpectedly mm -hmm. or ending up late due to the compulsions that she would feel because of her mental illness so we also have like their his constant fear of his own mother being caught, people finding out about her condition and then taking her away from yes. him. That is playing out here in the way that he blows up at Lyra. And I I believe that's a really big part of it. He's reliving that same fear and scenario that he's grown up with when it comes to dealing with his mother's illness and having to just be responsible for her. Yeah, uh, and we'll get it in the next dialogue we get from him, especially that's heart-wrenching because it's absolutely tied to like he's afraid he's a, this is just the next person he's gonna yeah. lose the next person that's gonna be taken away from him and lyra's and just kid. gone through that herself as we know she's just a couple steps ahead of him in the whole mm -hmm. recovery process you know um absolutely he's upset lyra is you know she's kind of like hey don't blow up i mean you need me dude and he's like why do i need your help and she's explaining she's like to find your father so here Lyra's kind of playing the Ma Costa role, right? Just like in series mm. one, when Ma Costa says, she's your mother, Lyra. And Lyra here is saying, I, you have to find your dad, Will. Idiot. <laughs> she tells him she knows from the alethiometer. And Will's like, I don't know what you're talking about because my dad left us and he's dead. She asks, can I show you? And so she does. They go to sit on a bench in the botanical gardens. And they have an alethiometer <laughs> moment discussing what happened to the man Will murdered. She then asks the alethiometer whether his mom's okay, and Pan crawls on the bench behind them. His mom's safe. Mr. Hanway will take care of him. Lyra tells Will he can trust her. She tells him she's betrayed someone before and she hates herself for it and she'd never let that happen to Will. And then Will 
tells her, yes, this is this is why I'm afraid, Lyra. He says, I'm going to have to leave her, aren't I? Just like my dad did. I don't want to, Lyra. I'll put her in danger if I stay. <clears throat> Further foreshadowing. It's so sad. You can see it's not just about his mom. Because it's about Lyra on the fucking bench in the fucking botanical garden. Yeah, I get it. I fucking get it. And I'm going to sue Jack Thorne. I already told him this on Twitter, but I'm suing him. Suing him for emotional damages. For emotional damages. Emotional damages. Yes. God. Oh, this uh, hurts. Like, this is this is exactly it. Just like you said, he's afraid. He's going to have to lose his mom and then eventually Lyra, too. Yeah, and, and in the Amber Spyglass, right? His big fear around that, he's losing people he loves, being alone. He's had to be alone so long, yeah. and he's learning to trust again, and it, that it's good. I'll be gone. Eliana's covering her anyway. face with her ponytail right now, but I thought I saw a tear form. It didn't leave, but it no. formed. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, not yet. Maybe one day. We've got a few episodes, you know, to go. Something here that, you know, something else here that's also kind of sad, but and emotional, but in a different way, not not as heart wrenching as this one is the way that it ties thematically to a couple of other aspects in this episode, this line and the, uh, all these things about John Perry. Because it's not just about mothers leaving their children in order to keep them safe, but we, I think we can kind of uh, put that on John Perry too, right? Fathers who have to leave to keep the people in their lives safe, um, mm-hmm. but also just kind of getting lost because you can find the window. But anyways, um, it's it's. For the witches, right, like, while it's more about a custom than it is in this world, like, you know, because as we've discussed, the books say that men cannot be witches, but I think that the show plays that protection aspect up more when it comes to Dr. Linsalius because they're stressing that his mother sent him away so that he would not have to undergo the pain of the ritual, and so we're seeing a lot of that idea of parents and protection and, and absence and how it can be, I think, different and nuanced, even though, you know, Mrs. Coulter, it was a little more, it was less wholesome, maybe, but... Yeah. I, I think that's a really great look at it, because this episode did feel very strongly about that whole maternal-paternal thing going on, like Coulter with Lyra, and I think the parallels are only going to get stronger as we see Coulter kind of go out on her own to forge her own journey now from the Magisterium after this episode. She's going to wear khaki. And I know they're... Oh my god. <sighs> yes, while wearing khaki. No, she she is though. She's striking out on her own and Will meeting uh, his dad at the end of this season is going to be kind of parallel to Coulter hoping to find Lyra and protect her in her sick, twisted way. Because we yeah. learn... <laughs> I can't wait for that. So well, we close the scene with Lyra telling Will that his father might be connected to Chitagatse as well, like the alethiometer told her Will is. Then she tells him that she likes it here in the botanical gardens, and he says he does too. Yeah, the subtle knife turns out is actually the one that's being stabbed into our hearts and repeatedly twisted. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> with all these scenes. Who wrote yep, this? That's a subtle knife. Who? Jane Tranter. <laughs> Jack Thorne. I'm calling all Philip of you. Pullman. Yeah, Philip Pullman. All I'm calling all of you Everyone. to a table right now in front of a jury that is me, my cats, and Eliana, and we're going to have a talk. Mm-hmm. 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 We are going to have a talk. 
But before we have that talk, Mary Malone and Oliver Payne have a talk, and they discuss how even though this magical little girl rode on through, they still don't have enough funding to keep their research afloat over a beer. They talk a little bit about faith in a way that's kind of fun, kind of subversive. She tells Oliver to have faith. She's like, come on, have faith. And he's like, <sighs> science, Mary, science. He doesn't say that, but that's the idea. Well, then we get to the big one, right? MacPhail decides to take care of the witches. MacPhail's room is really yes. cool, but despite all the, you know, blowing people up thing. Uh, his room's awesome. It has a window in the very center that's like a very small vertical slit of light that comes in like a crack in his world. Mm-hmm. And then leads up to that like magisterium symbol up top. And yeah, I think that slit that you're that's there it takes on a lot of meaning in this show. And it's on one hand, as you said, a crack in the world, but also feels a little bit like that separation or splitting of the veil in the Ark of the Covenant when Jesus died. Mm. And they're like, what is this? And how the worlds are now connected or the way has been opened. Mm -hmm. But I think that line also starts to take on its own symbol symbolic meaning, creates its own visual language within the series. We see it in that very first moment, right? In the opening credits where the two sides, they meet one another feels dusty and we also recognize it again right in those graphics in the cave and here we see once more that glowing line of light and it becomes both of those both of those lines and it also starts to take on that symbolic meaning i think of the divine or communing with the divine uh, as we see it repeated throughout this episode and i think there's a sense of irony here because we see that Father McPhail seems to probably be acting of his own accord, and rather than maybe listening to divine voices, is actually uh, acting on the temptations of the devil in his ear, Mrs. Coulter, in that he's pro- what he's proposed, as opposed to the kind of connection that Lyra has, right? Father Garrett? All these yes. people got names. They got they got that DIs with a name whose name I forgot. Even though we said honest, it earlier, this episode. I confused Father Graves and Father Garrett for a good six episodes. So <laughs> I had to look it up to make sure this time. I'm putting that out there, like yep. I said last episode, oh, all geez. eight of the white guys that wear the black robes. Uh, Father Garrett is yes, that's his name. He's the one with the pence fly as a demon. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's hard, especially because like they had some images where they just shot them had their like silhouettes in the white outline how am i supposed to know all of them like the same with their faces shrouded but and father garrett's is pretty shrouded here when he brings the paperwork for mcphail to sign yep and says that the witches must be cleansed then he prays for father mcphail's success this evening father mcphail most of all prays for it Yes, McPhail goes to pray and he tells his demon it will be worth it. It has to be done and they will repent for it. He repeats it all had to be done. His demon agrees and calls it a necessary sin, but still a sin, she says. She tells him to put his hand out over the fire and he does, lowering it slowly and accepting the flames. Again, with that treatment we see in uh, characters with more evil dispositions, hurting themselves, their demon, their toxic demon relationships, uh, just like with Mrs. Coulter. And of course, again, he, he's doing a great job. I'm really amazed. Again, this is Daphne's in-real-life dad 
So it's kind of Mr. Daphne Keaton's father. Mr. Daphne Keaton's dad. No, it's hysterical. He's killing this. He's doing like a really good job. I'm yeah. actually amazed. Like, I'm not saying I didn't expect him to. It's just like he's really getting it. He is. He's got the acting down. He's kind of like this crazy guy that's an idiot at the same time, getting played by Coulter. Yeah, it. He must be a really good actor because I cannot imagine this man as Daphne Keene's father. I I feel like he must be so he warm, must be so different, so warm behind the scenes. Yeah. Hysterical. He must be so different. Hysterical. Miss <laughs> Coulter visits Thorold in prison. She tells him that she gave him every chance to escape and that she thinks that Lyra might be in danger. And she asks if Asriel had any clues about Lyra's whereabouts. And Thorold's like, yeah, I mean, she came. She came to see him. I literally saw her a moment before you showed up. And that actually Asriel was ready in that moment. He was like getting ready to cut her because of he thought he had to doesn't mention the prophecy but then thankfully for i guess asriel but not thankfully for everyone else roger the kitchen boy was there instead and he's the one who gets severed yeah coulter puts all this together and goes lyra followed asriel and she's in another world i'm of two minds here two things one it's the weakest part of the episode now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. There has to be a weak link, okay? Like, not everything's going to be gold. Um, but it was silver or bronze at worst, so it's still good. It's not a bad part. It's just it was the weakest part. It works. It connects. But it just feels so weak. And it felt like, hey, let's get Lancelius's actor and Thorold's actor and make sure we fulfill the contract this week, you know? Um, it just felt like they needed to fill their quota for their contract for this series. Uh, I just think... I don't know, I guess where would have Thorold gone, but at the same time, it just felt like a weak way to get this knowledge that, oh yeah, Thorold's here, by the way. That being said, it is going to move Coulter's plot along, right? Uh, and not only that, but it shows that she has motives for Lyra, not just for magisterium power, necessarily, and as we are about to learn with her and MacPhail, she also wants to go travel the worlds, but she also is searching for Lyra, it seems. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd agree with you. I mean, I'm like meh on this scene. And I was just like, why is he here? It's also, I guess, yeah, I, I guess it's he's also there, so it, we don't have to spend a lot of time for Mrs. Coulter finding Thorold to find this out, and it's like an easy way to, you know, move the plot along. And it is the Serafina and Thorold scene. That is what it is. Like, that's what they're adapting. They need that information. Yeah. I just think they could have gotten it in a different way. No offense, Thorold. Yeah, I think it works well to have it be Mrs. Coulter as opposed to Serafina. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, and especially as we build Mrs. Coulter's storyline along with the Magisterium, right? Which is now having a sort of semi-like ethnic cleansing campaign. Yep. And by that we mean bombing the witches and their homeland. Yeah, it's uh, not great, right? Like The scene is all intercut with the men are voting for the new cardinal and they're placing their ballots into a bowl where it burns up. And it's showing bombs being unrolled at the same time off of Magisterium Zeppelin down to the lakes. Uh, it's, it goes back and forth and it's pretty, it's something. I think, it, you know, I see what they were going yeah. for. And I think it, they're, they're, they're working on tying these different ideas and scenes together. Really tying it together. Um, and I think it works better than, you know, what, what the scene we just came yeah. from. Right, because that interspersing those intercut scenes with the voting, you have the flames of the votes 
right, from how they're sort of adapting the papal voting system, how the, the Pope gets chosen in the Catholic Church, as we've discussed in the trailer episodes. And they're bringing it together and echoing it with the fire and smoke Im imagery that's burning up the witches' lakes and homes. So you have the fire there in this one, and it's all going up in flames. Yeah, the power of the magisterium is consuming in both operations, obviously. We have men kissing yes. McPhail's ring as he watches the flaming voting bowl with wide eyes, and then we flip back to the lakes, which are being lit up, and the witches watching with their demons as their homes are destroyed. And then McPhail is back to gazing at the fire in his bowl. You know, he should have been Stannis. That's who should have been Stannis. Yeah. Daphne Keen's dad is would have been a great Stannis. He actually, yeah. I think, really would have, like, with the the, I'm being the hair and or lack thereof. Yeah, no, I yeah. know. He'd be a you great think I don't know Davos. Wow. Wow. So I spoke a bit earlier about how the ethnic cleansing happening here of the witches uh, is kind of significant and similar to the bombing of indigenous lands and people by the Germans in World War II. But I live in a city that has actually experienced its government bombing part of it. In May 1985, the city of Philadelphia dropped a satchel bomb, a demolition device that's usually used in combat laced with Tovex and C4 explosives on a black liberation organization called MOVE. MOVE was a political and religious organization who advocated for anti-government technology and anti-corporation ideals. And they were a little different than the witches, but not really that different in the grand scheme of things. They lived in West Philadelphia, a row home that was known to be occupied by men, women, and children, and the bombing ended up killing 11 people, five who were children, the leader of the MOVE organization, and it ended up destroying 61 homes, leaving 250 people homeless. If you haven't been following any of the Western news, I salute you because it's exhausting and depressing, uh, but this is the same side of my city that authorities relentlessly tear-gassed and intimidated all summer get them back into their households during ongoing protests against racial inequality, human rights, and police brutality. And in the time leading up to the full-out microcosm of a mini-war on this side of the city in 1985, the city continually antagonized the area for weeks, pumping tear gas into the neighborhoods, forcefully evacuating people. MOVE didn't have a perfect record. Some of their confrontations in the city ended up being disruptive. Some people were allied to them. Some people didn't really like them. Uh, but the biggest thing that happened from all of this is that all groups that advocate for rights in the city of Philadelphia at the time stood up and protected people involved, stood up and condemned the act of the city. Because just as Ruta was trying to explain to Serafina Pekula before all of this happened, if they can do it to one of us, they can do it to any of us and all of us. Situations like this, where it's not just one witch who behaved badly, uh, it doesn't matter the race or creed, because as we saw with Lancelius, they locked him up as a peace envoy. The Magisterium don't care who they hurt or take down. This leads us to the height of the episode, because one thing is now certain. Serafina's hand has been pushed. She has to act. If they can do it to one, they can do it to all, and they can strip free will from any of us. Yes, and we see that they've been willing to do it, right, to children. You were pointing out the 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 way children ended up as collateral in all of this and absolutely and i think you're really seeing the stakes here and i there as you said there are real world examples of they can do it to one of us they can do it to all of us there is no fairness when it comes to these sorts of authoritarian regimes mm -hmm. right the the morality gets lost and you know in it, we we're speculating actually in the first episode of this season 
what is it that's going to force Serafina to pick a side? And I think we had obviously thought it would come later in the episode and not be this. Yeah. Which again, glad there are twists and surprises for us in, in this series. And this does make sense, especially also for it to happen here so we can start moving that witch storyline along. Mm-hmm. I do, you know, I kind of wonder, like, are we going to see Serafina at first blaming Ruda and then and Ruda's attack and saying that's what led to this attack on the witches, even though it's not, right? We saw that it was just a, a, a sort of big power trip on the part of Father McPhail um, before that, like, maybe Serafina agrees to join forces, or is it going to be like Serafina still refuses to take action, even though I don't think that Serafina would be like that. I'm, I'm just speculating different ways that this can all go, but, like, or will, like, you know, she refuses to take action, but the rest of the witches in her clan are like, no, we can't stand aside because, as you said, if they can do it to one of us, they can do it to all of us. And they move to unite and force Serafina to do so. Or is it going to go straight to just Serafina agreeing and being like, you were right, Ruta, we have to take action now. The time is now. And, you know, I think that there are a lot of other things that are playing off one another in this episode. I do think that there's something in how the witches scenes where Ruta and Serafina are discussing what sort of action should we take? How sh- how should we unite in power in this episode at the beginning? It contrasts with the power struggle that we're seeing within the Magisterium between Father McPhail and Father Graves, where, you know, the priests, they refuse to discuss the different issues that are in front of them. They turn it into the- that power struggle. It becomes this competition, whereas the witches, they're having that open discourse with one another. There's a respect between the both of those leaders as they're trying to figure out like what should we do with this power should be in terms of like, just sharing it and uniting. Yeah. I think we're going to have to see some resolution on Lancelius as we mentioned earlier. And yeah, I don't know that paired with, I think some of the stuff you mentioned last week on the specters versus the witches coming back into play. Uh, we've seen mm. kind of a shot of Coulter in Chittagatse and I'm wondering if we're going to get any aspect, like you said, of Coulter training the Spectres. Uh, Maybe it'll become more Uh, of a Coulter training the Spectres and attacking the witches with the Spectres. Yeah, and she kind of, like, does that in the books, but it'll be interesting if it's more... Direct. um, Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what's happening, right? Like, we're seeing a lot of these kind of background events being made more front ground, more foreground events being made into real, just, like, scenes, which is really interesting. And I know there's a little bit of made up mm-hmm. coming to us in the next episode as well, but not not too much that's out of like the suspension of disbelief. It all seems to be in the realm of what sh- did happen or could happen in the background during these events. Yeah, it, it works within the context of the story. And as opposed to maybe taking anything away from what's in the books, it really strengthens the themes and messages of Pullman's story. Yeah. Well, as we get to the very final scene, we have Coulter visiting Father McPhail, now Cardinal McPhail's room, to congratulate him. But when we say congratulate, it's not so much congratulations. It's more like, congratulations, you were played, sucker. Yes, she says to him, you know, you were both the spider and the fly in this web that I've made sort of that he's both an instrument uh, for her work and also the prey. And then she's given him a death sentence as the cardinal and being like, well, you know, I know what you did, so 
I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want. And what I want to do is roam the myriad of universes. Oh, the spider and the fly. Father Graves' demon is a spider and we see it in the last scene. Uh. Father Garrett, who comes to him, asks him to sign the stuff for cleansing the witches. His is the fly. She's made him both the spider and the fly. He's between both of those men. She's played them all against each other. Yes, that's that's a great... That's a great I didn't catch. think about it. I didn't, I didn't think that. about it until I just realized. I'm like, oh shit, Father Garrett, fly demon. Yeah. Ah. And they're all there. You know, Mrs. Coulter, also a poet. She is. She's actually quite accomplished. Well, and so evil, in this scene, uh, he says to her, he's like, you forget yourself. And she, she like gives this, huh, huh, I forget myself. And the demon, her monkey demon grunts. He's like, hmm. Yes. And it, it, me too. I was sitting here going, ho, oh, ho, ho, forget myself, huh? Okay, I'll show you forget myself. I'll show you forget myself, Cardinal. I love that emphasis. You know, we've seen a lot, uh, especially described in the books, that her demon, right, just has such presence that people shy away from it. Like, their own demons are like, ooh, I cannot take that. And you know what? The little lizard cannot take this monkey. What's it going to do? Like, tear the lizard in two? Which, I do like the lizard's voice, though. The lizard and the monkey are both cute. And that has, again, nothing to do with this. But, anyway, Mrs. Coulter says, you know what? I'm gonna do whatever the fuck I want. You're gonna turn your other cheek. And then she leaves. And she's like, he thinks that she's gonna go look for Asriel. And she's like, no, not everything is about dick. Alright, she's gonna look for something way more valuable. And then she calls him Hugh. She says, goodbye, Hugh. And I'm like, Hugh McPhail. He's a Hugh McPhail. Hilarious. It's the funniest shit in the whole fucking world. I was screaming laughing. Uh, I, what a what a power move. Everything she did in that moment, truly. Uh, Ruth, Ruth iconic. Yep, she leaves. She's free at last of the Magisterium to go search for other worlds and her daughter before the magisterium finds her first and i think this is totally some of the setup for father mcphail to end up being the father gomez in the story i'm guessing he's going to be father gomez i think he's going to be heading the bomb for lyra and he'll fail Mm -hmm. as we know he'll probably be scorned and pushed out and father graves will be instituted and i'm guessing father gomez father uh not father gomez now but father mcphail will go off to hunt lyra which is a hysterical because it's lyra's dad right in real life and then yeah. b uh no real spoilers but i just never realized the father gomez and bonneville parallels till right this moment oh interesting scorned yeah, by the mother no, absolutely stalking lyra to kill her because they're upset at their failure in the hands of mrs coulter yeah they're they've got that going on there and yes it will be funny both of lyra's parents you know both fictional and real will be searching for her hmm. slash daphne hmm. What an episode. But not as real. What an episode. Not yeah, as real. Not in this season. <laughs> <laughs> the other, the yeah. other dad. Not Yorick either. Not Lee either. The other other dad. <laughs> well. What an episode. And we are so ready for episode three. Eliana, what do you oh expect God, to yes. see in episode three? I know we've had a few spoiled things just from trailers. Mm, I haven't seen that many of the trailers, partially because I, like, haven't looked too hard for them, and also I couldn't find them, because I didn't try very hard, obviously. (laughs) I was like, I don't know where it is, and that seems like way more work than I want to put into it, and, you know, we'll just go into it blind. 
as we all know, I was like, maybe we'll see Joe Pari this episode, and clearly we did not. So I think we're going to finally see Joe Pari. We have to bring back Lee Scoresby because we didn't have him at all this episode, so I think we have to bring him back because, you know, contracts. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised like that. because we, you know, his. I think they're cutting his journey down a lot. Um, and maybe mm. maybe they're making the journey with him and Joe Pari longer. And having the beginning, the trek to the journey, but he's going to go to Nova Zembla. He, I saw a frame from Nova Zembla that you actually can see uh. the bar. He mm. actually is going to go to Samirski's and go to Nova Zembla, but I'm guessing we're going to get that done this episode, and he's going to get to the Shaman this episode. Yeah, and I think we're going to get, you know, Mrs. Coulter entering Chittagatse. Actually, we actually we we might not. That would be interesting if we didn't and built that suspense for what she's going to do first in this episode. And I think we're also going to see, we have to see a follow-up to the witches yeah. and stuff. What do you think, Chloe? What do you think we're going to get this well, episode? Well, I know we're going to get this weird new scene of Coulter and Lee, as we've seen from that trailer clip. There's a really tiny trailer oh. clip. Hmm. So we have a made-up scene that's new. I'm interested to see how that works. And we're going to go from there. And I guess, I, I think we're going to get some Will and Lyra spending time together, which is nice. Uh, is Lyra going to lose the alethiometer this episode? That's what I'm wondering, but it feels too early. Does it? Because then it's episode four, and then we only have three episodes left, so maybe. Or she she could lose it, but it will be at the end of the episode. That's what I'm thinking. I think we'll close maybe on that. She'll lose it at the end, because I think they go back to Oxford, so. Yeah, she has to, because she told Miriam Malone that she's going to come back the next day. So they come back, and uh, I think we're going to see some exploits. I think we get the movie theater scene. I think they go on a date. I'm pretty sure we get their first date. Okay, that's important to me because I just really, you know, Lyra's had omelets. She was going to have this cookie. And I don't know why, but I just really want Lyra to try a burger. It's just like really important to me and I want to see her react to that. I had a burger the other night. It was great. I I might have a burger for Lyra. Holy shit. I hope she gets a burger. I think that's, uh, I hope that, and I hope we get some more pan sass. That's what I want. Oh, Yorick. I hope we get a Yorick. I hear we might see Yorick. Me too. He was too. in the trailer. I, I've been wondering. I don't know how, but Yorick. I want it. So yes, same. Maybe he rescues Lee or something, because they could also be in love. That could be cool. I'd be fine with that. I'm open. I'm open. I'm an open book, so I hope you surprise me tonight, his dark materials. Negative capability. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Negative. Lee and York is a better ship than some potentially canon, some potentially canon things that we are getting in uh, some of these other stories, so. Oh my god. Well, thank you so much for listening into our recap of His Dark Materials Series 2, Episode 2, The Cave. It was a blast. If you have enjoyed listening to this, please feel free to subscribe to us on many other places that you can hear us, like iTunes, Apple Podcasts, if you're on there, Google Podcasts, you name it. Yes, and of course, keep up with some of the things that we're saying about his dark materials. We also tweet some other insights and cool links. Find us on Twitter at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter. Or maybe you have something to say about any of these episodes. Feel free to shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, and we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. If you're in our Thunder tier or above, that's $10 and above tier, you get access to our Discord channel which we are talking about His Dark Materials constantly there. We have a spoilers channel, a no spoilers channel. We have the books. We have the books of dust. Please come hang out. It's very active there. And 
People in the $5 and up tier, Stranger tier and above, will get a special episode on A Song of Ice and Fire this month, and next month they'll get a special episode on His Dark Materials. That is, again, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Yes. And, of course, this week, later this week, look forward to a La Belle Sauvage episode following the Book of Dust book one. Yes. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. See you next week. Goodbye. Oh, shit.